Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America. We live in Israel. And we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode, we'll host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Greetings out there in podcast land, everybody. Welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Benny Shoulder. You're also the beyond, and I'm Dan Pfefferman, and together we're excited <laughs> to have another great episode with the amazing Laura Kelly. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Fantastic. You're talking to us live from Washington, D.C., right? Yes. All right. Before we get going, though, before we get going... Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to our audience watching us today on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. And for those of you listening later in the week on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all the other podcast platforms, know that there's a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Juwan's podcast when we record, or you can watch all our episodes on our YouTube channel, Juwan's podcast, as well as our website. Also make sure to follow us on Instagram. We're at Juanced on Twitter at Juanced Podcast and visit our website www.juanced.com. As always, make sure to subscribe to Juanced on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we'd love it if you leave us a five star or whatever the highest review is. It really makes a difference. But if you want to give us a two star review, get lost. We don't want you to to do that. No need. No need. No need to be mean. So uh, I got vaccinated today. Nice. Yeah. Did you grow a tail as the everyone no, has made that joke? No, but I can before? feel the nanoparticles making their way to the base of my spine where they will report um, basically the, the, the codes to the, the Jewish uh, the space laser? laser. The space laser. Is that after <laughs> before you become gay? Uh, was, was that a thing too? I think so. I don't know. I think you just offended some. some, some if you're Jews. gay, you become straight. Uh, there's some kind of thing in the code. There. I don't know. I don't know. Um, we live in a crazy Do you feel world. okay? Yeah, I feel fine. I feel fine. I think I, I was a little bit dizzy afterwards. Uh, maybe it was just the excitement of of the moment. Uh, it was super, super efficient. I yeah, went they in. They were quick. They were quick. They Absolutely. gave me, a, you know, I, I swiped my card in the machine. He gave me the number. I sat down. A minute later, they called me. Uh, the guy was really nice, too. He was like, my name is Ido. Please sit down. Would you this expect is the, him to be mean? <laughs> I mean, I thought it was going to be like, you know. Russian. Soviet girl. style. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe. <laughs> Turkish prison. Something like that. Uh, but but he was cool. He, you know, he held a little vial. By the way, it's small. It's, it's very like small. this tiny little vial. Uh, and he's like, this is the Pfizer vaccine. And uh, you might experience these side effects. And he lists out the side effects. And and then uh, he's like, are you ready? I'm like, well, after that list of side effects, I, you know, I'm sitting here. I you have a choice? Yeah, no choice now. So they do it and, and then you're done. I got to uh, say, I didn't feel the, the pinprick. No? I really didn't feel it. I was like, is it going to hurt? And he's like, no. And then I was like, he's like, that's it. And I was like. I mean, oh. it's a shot. It, it, it feels the same it. as any shot. Didn't feel it. And where where did you have it done? I mean, was it just in a doctor's office, or was it in this kind of like big 
Yeah. No, uh, I had it done in just like a, a, a clinic, like a doctor's office uh, in the town that I live in. Uh, although I know that in other bigger cities in Israel, there are like the big uh, vaccination centers that have been. They're built. using auditoriums or something yes. or tents or. I'm going to get my second vaccine. I just made the appointment for next week. Um, it's going to be at, they, they turned the local community center into a vaccination uh, center. But my first one, it was kind of one of these, um, I get a text from a, a buddy of mine. He says, hey, did you get vaccinated? I was like, no. He's like, go to this nursing home on the other side of town. If you show up within the next half an hour, they have extra doses. And I showed up and I got it. And, you know, it was just kind of off the grid like that. And they just entered my info into the system on their phone. They have an app on their phone, my name, my national ID number, and my HMO. And, um, yeah. and you know, I was in the system, so. And, and That's amazing. They have they have kind of things happening like that in the U.S. I mean, like I've heard stories of people like going to pharmacies and getting, you know, the end of day when people don't uh, show up for their appointments. But it's also like, I don't know where the vaccinations are happening and I don't want to just like wait for hours. I, you know, I've got things to do. And, you know, I, is it I even tried, ethical? Yeah. I tried that the first time just to walk in and see if they had extra and they didn't. So this time they, someone called me, he's like, look, we have extras show up now. And I, I don't know, I'm getting texts like that almost every day. Yeah, I, I, I do too. And I see there's a Facebook group here where people report where there are vaccines available at the end of the day for people that aren't in that age group. My mom is in the States actually, and she got her vaccine uh, a couple of days ago. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, but like on, on that kind of a way, like she's 71 years old and she she should be vaccinated. But in, in her state, she's in Minnesota. They still haven't gotten to that. Like she's too young basically. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. She wanted to get it. And I, I don't know how the exact details, but she had a friend who has some sort of like a large factory and they had vaccines at the factory for, for the factory workers. And she got a Why call not? saying these people didn't show up. We were going to get rid of this. Uh, and she ended up getting it that way. And she called me afterwards. She's like, I feel really bad about this. Like I took somebody's vaccine. I was like, look, the vaccine was going go to go, go to waste. Yeah. So literally go in the trash. Um, and she's 71, way. so. 71 years old. She should be getting it. But, but something else uh, kind of upset you today, didn't it? Upset a lot of people in this country, at least. <sighs> That's my big sigh. I tend to try, people that, that know me will realize that I'm very, very political, you know, in private, but in public, I, I tend to, to avoid it simply because I'm sick and tired of it. Uh, and, and I'm sick and tired of a lot of things that go on. And, and especially during this past year, you know, my mind's been in a lot of other places. Yeah. But today... More than any other day, uh, you know, I'm just sitting in the car going through my usual anxiety about COVID and the state of the world. And will I go back to work? And will, you know, we be able to see my parents? I mean, I don't know if you realize this, Laura, we're our airports shut down. Like literally we we're, we're, Oh, it happened. Yeah. We're we've since last week, uh, since a week ago, right? about a week. Yeah. Yeah. We're no flights in, no flights out. And that's kind of indefinite. They say it's a, a week. Now it's going to go on for another couple of weeks. In my mind, it could go on until everybody's vaccinated. You and know. we're still on lockdown. Yeah, anything can go. Um, so I turn on the TV today and I see that there's a funeral for a rabbi who I will admit I did not know. Uh, he's a famous last name. Soloveitchik, uh, the head of the Brisker dynasty. Right. So he passed away from COVID. He was 99 years old. And no fewer than I want to say something or the police had it estimated at around 20,000 people looked like it. Yeah. Showed up for his funeral. Very crowded, very, very crowded, packed in outdoors. 
Uh, I was sent some sort of insider videos that were taken of people that were there. There were fights that were breaking out in the crowd for people to try to get up close to the body, which was being taken out of the uh, home where it was in. And, and in typical, you know, Jewish funeral rites here in Israel, the body's basically just in a shroud. There's no coffin. It's not like in America where we're taking right. out in a box. It's, it's you're literally on a, a thing. It's a stretcher with with the. So this guy's a tallest. So, so this guy's COVID-ridden body, which is literally still shedding COVID. I don't think that's a thing. It is a thing. Is it? They, yeah, they had a, okay. they had a, a thing about it in the news. How when somebody passes away from COVID, the virus is still in them. Okay, it has to break down. But Makes sense. They're trying to like you know run, rush the body, and um, I just walked in the door. I was outside with my kids doing something, and my wife had it on TV, and I'm looking at it, and she's like, "What do you think?" And I was like, I just kind of sat there like that. Like I, I have no words from what I'm seeing. Well, I mean, uh, just basically everyone. We, I think we know we're just in this posting for, angrily about this. Yeah, on Facebook because we're just me. in this lockdown garbage for so long now. Israel is the longest. Uh, how should I say this? We're the country with the lo- with the most amount of days spent in a lockdown of any country in the world. Even though it's not really a lockdown. Well, it's a, it's a lock. You're here at my house. I was, you know, unemployed. I've been in, you know, I've been working since March. I work in travel. Um, I know that there are something like a million plus people in this country that, know, you know, in a country of nine and a half million that are not working right now. Uh, and you see something like that take place. And it's just this big, 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 um, you know, forget about symbolism. It's, it's, a, it's a, a manifestation of the divisions that we have in our country. And to see people that completely and totally ignore uh, the reason that the person that they're mourning passed away from to go to his funeral. First, I don't think it's what he would have wanted at his funeral. I don't I don't pretend uh, to know what he wants I, or not wants, but I've, I, I would hard, find it hard to believe. I've read people that are familiar with, with this rabbi and his teachings uh, have said uh, that he placed uh, the value of saving human life, pikuach nefesh, as one of the highest values. And so they find it incredibly ironic and, and tragic that his followers would be risking their lives to participate in, in a mass funeral. You know, there's, there's something, there, there's a, there is a huge disconnect. And, and, and I've had more than a fair amount of my experience with the ultra-Orthodox community in the States and in Israel in my life. Um, you know, Shabbatot, holidays, uh, you know, family life cycles. I have relatives who are Haredi. I've had friends who are Haredi. And there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect. And I think, you know, you, you in the States, Laura, you guys have kind of a, a divide between between um, right and left on the issue of taking COVID, I think, seriously. And, mm. you know, wearing masks, not wearing masks. We don't really have that issue here. There's nobody going around the country saying there's no such thing as COVID. Oh, they're idiots that don't know how to wear their masks, but they're trying to wear their masks. There's there's idiots who aren't wearing masks out of laziness, but but there's no like people who are saying it's my body, it's my right, I'm not going to wear masks. You don't see that here. Yeah, mask holes. But what we do have, we have something else, (laughs) mask holes. We have something else here. And and I think this is what we're seeing. And I had a long talk with a Haredi friend um, last week about this. And... Yeah, and, and this is what I think the rest of Israeli society doesn't get. And I don't know how we bridge this. I don't know how we as a society bridge this understanding because they're saying we get COVID's a serious thing. They're placing, to me, it seems, I'm an outsider saying this, of course, they're placing the value of performing this mitzvah, that mitzvah, this tradition, that tradition, um, above the risk of being exposed to COVID. 
And, and I think you're above pikuach nefesh. Above pikuach nefesh, which which is supposed to be above everything else. And that's where I think this divide is. And then the rest of Israeli society is looking and saying, "Why, you know, first of all, I hate to say it, these people wear a uniform. They wear black suits and black hats. It's it, they're very visibly part of a crowd. So it's it's creating an otherness. And secondly, the police weren't trying to stop it. And I get it because if you're the police, yeah, it's twenty thousand people. Twenty thousand people. You you're, you're not going to arrest and ticket twenty thousand people. You just can't. On the other hand, and this is controversial to say, but. We, as a country and as a you know law enforcement community, military community, have a international reputation for the ability to put down violent uprisings and protests. Not when it's our own people, and now apparently. obviously not when it's our own people. And I'm not what I'm about to say is not me personally advocating this. I want to make that very clear. I'm not personally advocating for this, but it is getting gradually and 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 scalably more difficult to see a resolution to this if COVID continues and continues to get more more dangerous with, with variants and whatnot. Uh, it, it becomes gradually more difficult for me to see a peaceful resolution to this kind of a division where you literally have a very sizable minority of a minority in this country. 10%, that is 10% so, of, the, of the population. Um, so thumbing their nose in what in what in what the science is saying and and being proud of it and it it gets to a point where you know we look for nuance on this show and i want to say that there's nuance here because there's nuance everywhere then there's the other part of me which is like what the hell are you doing like this is not this is not rocket science i'm worried about something else and we'd be glad to get your take from from the other side of the ocean as someone you know who covers foreign affairs who's covered as as a journalist and, and we'll introduce you properly in a second here we haven't even jumped into the full episode yet but, you know, this is one of these things where I see it as, you know, when you have a small minority who's flouting the rules and creating a society within a society, that's one thing. But it, the bigger they get, the harder it's going to be to to get everyone kind of on the same page or enough on the same page. And, you know, do you have similar experiences in the States right now? Or, or how are you viewing what's happening here as far as the Haredi community? Uh, well, I think the story of the Haredi community in Israel has not risen to any sort of topical conversation of the U.S.-Israel relationship because it's such an internal uh, issue in Israel. Um, but I do remember, and maybe it was a slower news cycle at that point, um, you know, a few years ago, what was it, 2010 or 2011 or something, there was big stories about the Haredi community um, think like spitting on young girls or throwing rocks at them. Um, I think it was in Beit Shemesh. I I can't remember. So I don't want to, I don't want to slander any neighborhoods. Um, But that story gained a lot of steam in the U S and kind of the, the, you know, what was happening in Israeli society and how people were kind of pushing back on that. Um, But now I think we just have so much, so much going on in our own country that if something's happening in Israel, that doesn't um, affect the U S then we're just not paying attention. We say, okay, you know, they they deal with their own thing. But you had, um, you had. But with the Haredi community, in like New York. in you New York, had- yeah, and that was again, also, I mean, it 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 is uh, it is a story, um, but it, it again, it only rises to a certain level because there's just so much going on, and there's so much conflict, and there's so much division. Um, and so for news in New York and for people in New York city community, I mean, it's a huge story in how it's affecting their own ability to, to control COVID. Um, 
but it's also a, 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 a New York problem too, right? Um, yep. So... So before we continue with the show, we got a couple of announcements. A couple of quick uh, quick announcements. Uh, check it out. Juanced relies on support of listeners such as yourself to to make it happen. Uh, we're growing leaps and bounds. Dan, how many countries are we up to now? So this is a fun hobby of mine. I like to look every day. We're now up to 84 countries. And what are the new ones? <laughs> we have, uh, what, what did I say earlier? Solomon Islands. Solomon Islands. There's, there's somebody, I think there's four people in Solomon Islands, and one of them is listening to Juanced. Uh, Syria joined the club. Mm-hmm. What? Yes. <laughs> we have all over the Middle East. Uh, Suriname, Burkina Faso. There's some cool countries. Yeah, those are cool countries. Uh, Myanmar. So if you're in any of those countries, <laughs> and again, we we welcome you. If you are in a country, this is a serious thing we want to do. If you are in a country that is not obvious to, that, as to why A country that listening. does not have a sizable Jewish community and you somehow got connected to the show, whether whether you're Jewish or not and you're listening, Please write us. We'd love to know who you are. Share us, share ca- with us your story. The caveat is, is if you're in a country where you're writing to us, we'll get you arrested. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> don't do that. We have <laughs> listeners in Afghanistan and we have listeners in. Uh, our, our Afghani friend is listening right now. I'm so. sure he is. Hey, Wes. Hey, hey, uh, so, so that's, uh, reach that's out to thing. us. Say hi. We'd love to know uh, how you got to our show. Uh, if it was by accident or on purpose. <laughs> but with that in mind, if you'd like to support the show, you can make a, uh, a monthly contribution on our Patreon account. You can make a one-time contribution on our PayPal account. And if your company or organization would like to be a regular sponsor on the show, reach out. Again, you can find us at www.juanced.com. Also, more times than most, we understand the challenges of connecting uh, to an audience with creating meaningful content. So if you're looking to engage your community, we've got the perfect solution for you. We're introducing... Juanced Live. And we actually had a fantastic Juanced Live last week. Really did. Where we uh, worked, uh, we did a special episode for the um, Jewish Federation of Minneapolis and the Jewish Agency Partnership of Minneapolis and Rehovot, and together with the Rehovot Municipality. And we did a Meet the Emiratis, four fantastic Emirati panelists, uh, live event, questions and answers, interactive. It was a really nice event. Um, It's gotten more than a thousand views just on the on the Facebook post already. So uh, it was really fantastic um, and and good friends of ours and got to know uh, kind of the the UAE and Emiratis on a very personal level. So if you'd like to invite us to do such an episode, um, it could be on the UAE, it could be on any kind of topic, feel free, reach out www.juance.com. Terrific. And uh, this is our weekly, the next, the next segment we do is a weekly COVID report coming from data scientist, uh, Dr. Natan Davidovich. And you can follow him on his Facebook page. So uh, this week, scientists and epidemiologists around the world have been waiting with bated breath to see if the real world vaccine experiment, otherwise known as old people in Israel, would show us a way out of this pandemic or send us back to the drawing board. The Israeli Ministry of Health reported some exciting new data today. Out of the 715,425 people that are one week after the second vaccine shot, 317 have tested positive for COVID, 16 of whom were hospitalized. Some people read this and are worried that so many vaccinated people tested positive. However, a deeper dive into the numbers reveals that only 0.04% of these people tested positive during a time when around 60,000 unvaccinated unvaccinated Israelis tested positive, which is around 0.6% of the population. Uh, Calculating the ratio between these two numbers gets you pretty close to the 95% accuracy that Pfizer has found in their clinical studies. And this is including the fact that around half of the cases in Israel now are the British variant. So the vaccine seems quite effective there as well. It is important to keep in mind that this is not a controlled study and there are many potential sources for statistical bias 
but this is an early indication that the vaccine is doing its job. Uh, so you can all breathe the cautiously optimistic sigh of relief for now. Go ahead, Benny. I'm relieved. Uh, so why are overall numbers not dropping significantly yet? Uh, that's a very good question, and it worries a lot of us uh, because they're not dropping. Uh, there's a clear drop in severe cases for 60-plus uh, people for the elderly who have been mostly vaccinated. However, the under 60 cases continue to rise despite the strict lockdown, likely because of the more transmissible mutated virus. As more and more get vaccinated, we can hopefully expect these numbers to drop as well. I'll just add something that I've been reading about, thinking about, talking to people about. It could be that, first of all, the, the, this lockdown is not that strict. Let's be perfectly honest with ourselves. And secondly, when someone gets COVID, they're in their house. They're not really locking up in their rooms. They're walking in and out around the house. And it seems that most of the uh, spread of the virus is happening within households. So you can imagine that someone's sick or potentially sick and spreading it to the households and the people who aren't on lockdown are going out. Uh, anyway, I, I have a feeling. Going to funerals. Going to funerals. But um, thanks to Nathan, Dr. Natan Davidovich and uh, as so long as this uh, COVID pandemic and uh, crisis is with us, he will be graciously supplying us with these weekly analyses. And you can follow him on his Facebook, uh, Natan, spelled Davidovics in English. And you can see this uh, on the show notes or we can point yep. you to him if you're most interested. Most definitely. So without further ado, we'd love to introduce our guest. Laura Kelly is the intrepid reporter for The Hill in Washington, D.C., where she writes about politics and policy surrounding U.S. foreign affairs covering Capitol Hill, the White House, and the State Department. Lori began her journalism career in Israel in 2012, working for the Jerusalem Post, and lived here until 2016. Her reporting has taken her all over the world, covering conflict, culture, and natural disaster. I was hoping for three Cs, conflict, culture, and like... Catastrophes. Catastrophe. Ah, you, you guys are better copy editors than me. You should have thought of it. Come on. It was right there. This Dude. includes the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, the Syrian civil war, the fight against ISIS, Hurricane Marie in Puerto Rico, just to name a few, originally from Long Island, New York. Laura Kelly, welcome to Juanced. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Our pleasure. So uh, what's have- going on in D.C.? <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were there. You've been there through the through the insurrection, the failed coup, revolution, sedition. Um, Jewish space lasers have not visited yet, though, so you're you're doing okay. No, seriously, how how, how are things going? Uh, what are we now? We're we're ten uh, days, eleven days three, after inauguration. It, yeah, very short time after inauguration. Ten days, you're right. Um, about three weeks since the insurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it's hard to tell. In my neighborhood, it's it's crazy because I'm not a very far walk from the Capitol, so I can go down there and throughout the entire pandemic, it's just walking around the Capitol and walking to the National Mall has been such a, uh, such a wonderful time for me to take a break and, and have some normalcy and enjoy some beauty. Um, and now it's completely fenced off and it's unclear if the fences will ever come down. And so I just try not to go there too much anymore because you just get stopped. Um, but I think the National Guard uh, troops are starting to leave. Um, And I think the city is, I mean, it's a very liberal city. So we all, everyone is just very celebratory about um, Biden's presidency and uh, just trying to get through the pandemic as best we can. And yeah. Did you turn out to watch any of the inauguration events? Uh, Did you cover it? 
as they were happening? Um, I didn't, I mean, I didn't cover it specifically. I didn't, I didn't go to the inauguration. I walked around a bit that morning, um, saw um, all the troops out uh, with the fencing, saw some other journalists uh, setting up their live shots um, outside the fencing where you can see the Capitol. Um, and then I came back to my apartment and I watched it on TV and, you know, just kind of went about the, the day working. I, I, we, last week, we had on a presidential historian. Two weeks ago. Uh, two, no, two weeks ago. Sorry. Two weeks ago, we had on presidential historian Gil Troy. For those of you who have not heard that episode and kind of want to get a deeper, more historical perspective, it was after the events on Capitol Hill and before the inauguration. Um, and so I got to say, I came home the day of the inauguration and I watched on TV and it was very emotional. Um, and, and, you know, I get why I get why a lot of people supported Trump. Um, but for after four very chaotic years, it, it was to see... There's a word here in, in uh, did you learn Hebrew when you're here? I'm assuming you did. A little bit. So there's a word here called mamlachtiut, statesmanship, okay? Um, and, you know, it, it, one of those things that I think, whether you support him or not, Donald Trump was not a statesman-like person. You know, he was very partisan the whole way through. What are you talking about? It, it, was, it was as if, <laughs> and, I, and I said this last week or two weeks ago also, it was as if, you know, even after he won the election, he was still in election mode the entire time. It's like, dude, you won. Okay, be the president of the United States now. And, and one thing, you know, that I've always loved about Joe Biden, um, and, and maybe I think this administration will do that, is, okay, the election's over. It's time to be president. It's time to be the administration of the United States. What's, what's the feeling like in Washington in that regard? I think journalists are breathing a sigh of relief that we have someone who is on message and stays on message and we don't really have to worry about kind of a whiplash uh, policymaking by tweet or um, just conflict and controversy surrounding appointments of, of certain people in certain positions. But there's also the element, I mean, for everything that now Biden is returning to, all the people who are for Trump, I mean, they loved, they loved that about him, that he was so brash and he was so unapologetic. And they loved that he said rude things. And um, they had this impression that he, you know, slapped around other countries because he, he talked to them so forcefully, um, which that, so that was the impression among his supporters. And then as a reporter, I would look at it as like, no, he is not slapping them around. Like he's just alienating them. And now they are not relying on the U S and now we're in a weaker position because we don't have the support of our allies in confronting some of the global challenges. Were, yeah. were you there on uh, January 6th on the Capitol Hill writing, whatever, were you there at, on Capitol Hill? So, so that day I was, I end, I ended up going there. Um, I was in my apartment. I've been working from home since March of last year. Um, and we were all aware that tension was building and something was happening. And, and this was that all these Trump supporters were converging on DC. And I had actually gone out the night before in DC to kind of see what the, what the feeling was on the streets because they had had some kind of warm up rallies, I guess, uh, during the day. And then you just had tens of thousands of Trump supporters in hotels in DC. And um, 
and partying and things like that uh, in the hotel lobbies and things. So um, I went out with a friend and I walked from my apartment. Um, I live east of Union Station. So it's about maybe like a 20 or 30 minute walk to um, downtown DC. And um, on my way there, it, it's so weird, but I had never felt such a fear for my safety as I did that night. Physical safety. Physical safety with everything that I've done, yeah. <laughs> like it was, it shocked even me. There was one point, one, it was, it's just weird because since, because it's the pandemic, there's no one out in general. Right. Um, so I think it just allows for a lot of things to happen in the shadows that you don't know uh, what's, what's going to happen. I mean, America is a dangerous country just in general in terms of crime things. Um so there, that was one element of it. But then as I was walking towards the center of the city, I passed a group of um, men that looked to be about Trump supporters and they had billy clubs, like, um, and they, they, I think they had military. As, as one, as one does, right? Uh, it's just wild. Um, so then I, so then I met up with my friend um, who is a man uh, about six feet tall. So I was happy for that. And we decided to go into one of the hotels and there was just, I mean, Trump supporters everywhere, nobody in masks. They were flags and uh, Trump flags and everything, revelry, music, drinking, lots of drinking. There was this one guy who we took a picture of who had a flak jacket on, but I guess he didn't have like the steel plates in it, but he had two beers in the pockets. <laughs> and, and, then, and then he showed us his middle finger and he had COVID tattooed on his middle finger. <laughs> Um, I mean, he's against, in favor of it. He's against it. What does that mean? I mean, no, it ob means ob objectively, COVID. objectively COVID tattooed on your middle finger. Wow. I'm not, I share those same feelings. Um, yeah, but, it's, it's like the people who don't know how to wear masks properly also don't know how to wear vests properly. <laughs> or maybe they do. Maybe that is how you should wear it. You know what? No, you know what? You I, know what? I, 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 curious, cur I'm curious to know. This is going to sound bizarre. They were drinking in the hotel lobbies, you said. Mm -hmm. were, they, were they ordering from the hotel bar or did they bring in like coolers, coolers of, Bud Light. <laughs> of like, I, you know, I, I didn't see, I didn't see a hotel bar cause it was, um, so this was in, there was this one hotel, um, and it's really gorgeous. Like you walk into the lobby atrium and all of the rooms actually surround it. It's like all the rooms have windows. Um, I'm not sure they have balconies, but definitely windows, like looking down into the lobby in the atrium in some of those windows, people had put up like, Trump signs, Trump flags, things like that. Um, so yeah, there was just a big party atmosphere. My friend and I were in there with our masks on and we were like, wow, this would be a great opportunity to like really talk to people to kind of just just get inside their heads as much but as- they were all wasted. They're all wasted. But, and also, I mean, with the pandemic, it's like, that's as that's e sometimes even more scary. Like, I don't wanna be around people too much without masks and things like that. Um, so, so again, so then, then we walked to Black Lives Matter Plaza, um, which are you guys familiar with it? It's, um, it's this stretch of street um, that directly leads to the White House um, in DC. No, is it 16th, 16th Street? Yes, yes. So you have the White House, then you have Lafayette Park, and then you have um, uh, H Street that runs uh, east to west, and then you have 16th Street that runs north to south. Um, and so um, during the summer uh, after the death of George Floyd and with all the Black Lives Matter protests, they renamed this one area Black Lives Matter Plaza, and they wrote in um, big yellow letters the, um, the width of the street Black Lives Matter. 
Um, and it became, you know, it's a, it's a rallying point for Black Lives Matter supporters. Um, when uh, Joe Biden was declared the uh, winner of the election, I mean, that, that plaza was just filled with people celebrating. Um, and it also was before the January 6th insurrection, there was another rally in December called Stop the Steal. And I think a lot of Trump supporters and uh, mostly um, people of the Proud Boys white nationalist group, you guys are familiar with them? Yeah. So they, they caused a lot of violence during that time. Um, and it was centered around Black Lives Matter Plaza. And they had like gone to a church and they had ripped down a banner and they had burn the banner and stuff like that. So this, this was a, a flashpoint. So my friend and I were like, okay, let's go to Black Lives Matter Plaza because it's going to be a flashpoint. Um, and we arrived there. So this is the evening of January 5th. And there were, there were a lot of, there were police um, and on, and there was a barrier. And on one side of the barrier was what I would imagine was Black Lives Matter supporters because they were being kept to that side. And then on the other side were people allowed to go in and out. And it was a mix of mostly Trump supporters. And there was one black guy that was just kind of being open for debate with, um, with a lot of these, uh, these Trump supporters. Um, so we watched that go on and, and we talked to some people. And again, I saw, I saw more people in military fatigues or military just um, gear. And I asked them, you know, you're wearing a flak jacket. And again, this guy didn't have the steel plate. So I guess he just wanted to have a show of force. Um, he, in the he had a radio. Um, they were, there was another guy who had a hockey stick with like a flag, um, using it as like a flagpole. Uh, but Canada. Uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, so we were, we were just talking to them and kind of being like, you know, so what, what do you think is going to happen? Um, the one man that I was talking to had driven like 10, 12, 16 hours or something like that from Missouri. Um, and he was like, I just had to be here. And I was like, okay, well, the um, election certification is going to happen tomorrow. And, you know, by all accounts, it's going to go forward. There's the vice president has said there's nothing he can do. I'm like, so what do you expect to happen um and he was just like oh i don't know but we're angry we believe the election was stolen um and you know we just like there's going to be a revolution um not not like he was like saying that there was going to be an insurrection but that he was just so ex like just so expected violence um they were talking to me more from like a defensive point of view like they felt they were going to be attacked and they were ready wearing helmets and all these things or whatever sticks, yeah yeah um and it was it was it was just just disturbing i guess you know like you what don't want they, sorry sorry I, I i wonder what they thought was going to happen like i wonder when you say he he was prepared for there to be some sort of a revolution and, and he was talking from a defensive point like what did they i mean these are people that legitimately felt that they had to be there. This, this man who you were talking about got in his car, he drove 10 hours to be there, 12 hours, whatever it was. Like, I can't imagine, I mean, for some of them, I'm sure they knew what they were, what they intended to do. But for others, they were like just swept up in this moment. Frustration, man. And and frustrated and they were going to be there. But, but they, had, I, I, like you said, he had like some sort of palpable fear that something was going to happen and he needed to have like. I, I think it was, it was this, this build up of, they they felt that they were going to be accosted by counter protesters because we had seen elements of this happen throughout the country um, for for months. Um, 
and especially in these two, in this very polarized environment where we have news networks that um, are telling two different narratives um, in during the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, there, it was, there is violence happening, but by and large, they are peaceful. And this is, these are the things that they're calling for with their protests. But on the other side of, um, of, who, of this narrative is that these are um, radicals who are targeting police officers unfairly for murder and, and trying to kill them. Um, and they are destroying businesses and they are ruining communities and they want to um, topple the government to a communist state, like whatever, just all the things put together. Um, so I feel that at that moment on January 5th in the evening, like all of, all of that tension was, um, was reaching a fever pitch. And for a few weeks leading up to the January 6th rally, um, the message in DC was DC residents, counter protesters stay home. And I was thinking about this the other night as, as I was thinking about what we were gonna talk about. And it, it, looking back, I mean, it feels, it's so sad because it kind of feels that we like barricaded ourselves inside of our home and let the people who wanted to harm us just run freely through our city. Um, and I mean, that's kind of an, ex an extreme explanation of what happened, but like the, the general feeling, I mean, it's just, it's very sad. Do you, do you, that's interesting that you say that it's, it's, do you feel like it's almost almost like a, a, like a medieval perspective of, you know, this is our city and we have to defend it at all costs sort of a thing. And, but, but, you know, we have police nowadays and we have organizations that we've been, you know, entire you know, given authority to, to defend us. Do you, do you think that a lot of people really felt like, you know, I, I myself should have put my flesh and blood out there to defend my home or, or, or do people like, I hear that coming coming from you and I think to myself like you know you're in no position where you should have to be the person who goes out and defend right right there I mean but I mean what happened on January 6th was a whole bunch of different elements that seemed to have failed there was not the um the proper procedures taken to really prepare security um, for this kind of event. Um, there was also the failure to really look at um, what the threats were and prepare for that, all the online chatter talking about and taking seriously, like what was actually going to happen. And it's still unclear how organized it was and who were the people behind it. So um, there is a lot of things that we don't know yet about um, how, how it actually went down and 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 what were the failures of preparing the security. But there was also, and what's been talked about in the, in the days preceding, like the days after it was um, why wasn't, um, why wasn't there more security in general? And a lot of it was like um, thinking about the uh, amount of security that was deployed for the Black Lives Matter protesters and things like that. So was, um, I think um, mayor Muriel Bowser, DC's mayor, I think there was some element that uh, she didn't want to uh, militarize the city. Um, but, well, maybe yeah. she should have. Do, do yeah. you, it's, I mean, it's almost kind of ironic that, you know, it's, it's, we've had what, close to a year, <clears throat> excuse me, months during the summer, and then close to like, a lot, a lot longer than that of, of Black Lives Matter protests, some of which got very violent, and very destructive. 
and cities literally burned, shops were looted. Um, and it was always kind of the right that was, you know, talking about law and order and, um, and, and you know, in favor of the police. And then here you have right-wing protesters, you know, destroying, not destroying, but but storming into the Capitol and running over police and fighting with police, some of them. And, and it's always like, really, from you guys? Like, you're the ones who were talking about law and order this whole time. Um, and you get a lot of, you know, I've tried to talk to people who I don't think anyone supported the actual storming of the Capitol, but people are sympathetic to it, saying, well, at least we didn't destroy private property, you know. At least that, that's kind of the, a lot of things I heard, you know, it's better it to... Was- I was just going to say that it was it was so bizarre um, because also on the night of January 5th, when I was out there, I mean, there's all these police blocking, like protecting Black Lives Matter protesters. Any of the Trump supporters being like, let us through like a little bit, you know, there was this tension. um, And then on on January 6th. So I did I did go to the Capitol as the insurrection was happening. Um, I was on the outside and there was this element where there were some people who would see police and be like, oh, we're with you, stay safe, you know? And others who were like, you're a traitor. Um, So it it was like- Were you identified as press? Were you wearing like uh, anything? So I had had a press badge on. it's a, it's a small one. It's just like an ID card. I had it around my neck, Um, but I, I pretty much stayed um, to the outside. I didn't try to get into, um, any, any close interactions with people. And like, there were a lot of people congregate, a lot of people will say like occupying the steps of the Capitol. I was on the east side of the Capitol and they had, um, they had stormed the west side of the Capitol. So where I was on the east side, people were just kind of standing on the steps in like a show of force. Um, and I just kind of like stood to the back um, and people like milled about me. And I don't think that they um, really took notice that I was a journalist. I didn't have any video camera gear, but I saw a lot of journalists get harassed. Um, and yeah. and then they destroyed um, uh, a whole bunch of uh, camera equipment um, from from the AP and uh, Associated Press and, and from other outlets that were stationed there. Um, so it was uh, murder. The media was like scrawled that's on. Right. That's what I saw. On a door. It, was yeah. it scary? Like, were you scared to identify as a journalist or were you kind of like sneaking up to people? Hey, psst. I'm a journalist. Talk to me. Like, what's? Yeah, I really, yeah, I didn't. I, I was nervous to talk to people, and I, I didn't really talk to anybody. And I, I just kind of uh, stood stood around to kind of see what was going on. Um, and the the night before, when I was talking to people, I had identified myself as a journalist, and um, in that setting, it felt um, okay to do so, um, but. At one point, some man was like, oh, journalists twisting my words, like, this is what's wrong with you, blah, 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 blah. Um, so, yeah, it was tense. You were, you work for The Hill right now, right? You're a reporter for The Yes. What kind of publication is that? I mean, I, I know every publication probably likes to think that it's the one telling the truth and everyone else is biased. But, like, um, you know, w- us who are not working for these out- – no, it's true, right? Like, I'm sure people – you talk to The New York Times, but, you know, we hear – we. We here in Israel, at least, see the New York Times is very liberal, like kind of progressive, uh, relatively, you know, Fox News is more conservative. Where does the, pre- the Hill kind of see itself? I, I saw this I saw this graphic that was, um, you know, labeling news outlets where yeah. they fell on like the spectrum of like um, if if fact based and like non-biased reporting is like straight in the middle and then you have to the right and to the left and the hill was very high up in, in fact based reporting and then just slightly to the right um, for their like opinion and analysis section. 
that, that's my sense too. And I like, uh, I mean, I don't read the Hill for news so much, but I do read a lot of um, the foreign affairs coverage um, and, and opinion pieces that get published there. And at least, at least in the Israel perspective, you, you do get a sense that it's kind of a little more pro-Israel, at least the people who are publishing there. Was that, is that kind of accurate to, to say? I think, I think probably the, the opinion articles are maybe coming out on a little bit more of the, of the pro-Israel side. How long has it been around? The, the the newspaper oh that I, I i couldn't say with any authority <laughs> a long time we we hope your bosses are before with- before i arrived there which was <laughs> i arrived there uh in uh in 2019 <laughs> and we'll just say and we'll just say for our guests you before the before you were at the hill you were at you were here in israel you were in the jerusalem post and, and yes. you, were, you were living in israel i think uh what, for four years five years something like that we didn't mention years, it, but yes. you also wrote for Jewish Insider. Is that correct? Yes, I got my. Let's say I got my Capitol Hill start on uh, with Jewish Insider. So they that was uh, they were you very good with for Jewish me. Insider. I know. So I, I like this uh, uh, as a partial Jewish world professional. I get the Jewish Insider daily email update. It's a very very good just news roundup, right, of everything that's happening both in the Jewish world but politically relating to Israel in the Jewish world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a very good publication, um, kind of niche, but it's a good publication. And, uh, I can't say I read it every day, but I read it at least a couple times a week, get an email blast. What were you doing for, for Jewish Insider? Uh, I was their Capitol Hill reporter. Capitol, okay. So you've been covering Capitol Hill for a long time. I mean, well, relative. You know. <laughs> there, there are people who are, uh, on, on Capitol Hill, uh, who've been there for for years. I mean, this was the the Trump administration is the first administration I've ever covered, and this is the first transition I've covered. So, um, my experience uh, compared to some of the people who've sure. been in D.C. for a long time, like I would never <laughs> say I was. It might actually get boring for you now. You might have to go back overseas to get some. Right. Well, what I'm thinking about is, you know, if it does get a little boring, maybe I will have the opportunity to go overseas. Maybe there will be um, space where we can have these kind of bigger conversations because we're not so consumed with uh, the palace intrigue and the, you know, whiplash policy and things like that. I love it. Yeah, yeah, because the whole... Right? It was like well, you a, had Jervanka and you had Eric and <laughs> Don Jr. And, and then the revolving door of national security and press advisors and Melania. The Hill's been around since 1994, just to, to clarify. Okay. Uh, where were you? Where were you before you came to uh, Washington? Um, in foreign postings, where, where, where had you been overseas? Just Israel. I mean, I uh, I started my journalism career in Israel, and then um, when I left in 2016, I I just came uh, right back to the U.S. and I I moved to D.C. in 2017. Um, but the first job I got uh, in D.C. was as a health reporter. Um, Interesting. And I I had worked I had worked at a hospital. Um, uh, before I started in journalism. So when there was an opportunity to, to work at a newspaper in DC and they said, we have an opening for a health reporter, I said, oh yeah, sure, I can do it. <laughs> and then when I did it, I was like trying to do foreign policy and, um, and they a little bit were like, uh, why do you keep writing about <laughs> these foreign countries? Should have um, COVID where foreign policy know, and health was, co- collide. And I mean, time. when it when it happened, I was like, okay. <laughs> it have been your time to shine. <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, so you started uh, at, at the Jerusalem Post 2000, what did we say, 12? 2012, yes. I was an intern. Okay, so that was um, that was right when right after the Syrian civil war started and ISIS and all that. And uh, actually, the person who introduced us to you was uh, the very well-known reporter, uh, military affairs and Middle East affairs correspondent for Jerusalem Post, Seth Fransman. Um, and so you and Seth uh, had some adventures around the Middle East, didn't you? Yes, yes. Seth is Seth is a great friend, and he and he was a great mentor for me when I was at the Jerusalem Post too. And, and I hope he listens to this, and we hope to have him on the show soon to talk about, oh, there's so many things to talk about with Seth. Um, so w- what does that mean to cover, the, um, to cover the Syrian civil war, to cover conflict in the Middle East, to cover ISIS? What, where did you go? How does that work? Um, trying to, I want to get like my timeline right, um, because... I mean, Israel was the first introduction to conflict zones. When I arrived in 2012, it was only, I arrived in August and in November, it was um, operation, was it Amud Anon in November, 2012? I get them all confused. I, uh, I, I might've been, yeah. So when Tsuketan was after Amud Anon? Tsuketan was 14. Right, so they might've been Amud Anon. So I was still in the army back then, okay. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that was my, that was my first time like under rocket fire in Tel Aviv and things like that. Um, and then, and, and so I was living in Tel Aviv, um, in 2012 and then I moved to Jerusalem in 2013. And when I started becoming friends with, um, Seth at the, um, at the Jerusalem post, uh, he was always a, he was always ready to go anywhere and do anything. And so um, we started it out. He would be like, okay, I'm going to go drive down to the Gaza Strip because then the 2014 war. Um, and, you know, it's always more fun to do reporting with somebody else. So I was like, yeah, I'll come with you. Um, so, so yeah, we would, we would go down to, um, to the communities around the Gaza Strip. Um, and then when there was the spate of stabbing attacks in Jerusalem, you know, we were always all over Jerusalem. Um, we would go into the West Bank. We would um, go into Palestinian territories and um, Palestinian villages and things. Um, and remember, there was the, the rioting in Shuafat. He and I would, would go up there. Um, and then it came to a point where um, I think, I don't, from my perspective, I was getting a little bit overwhelmed with writing about all the conflicts happening in Israel. And at that point, we were starting to really see ISIS um, take over um, take over Iraq and Syria. And just following this, we're like, oh my God, this is insane. Like what's happening? Um, and so we, we oh, and with the Syrian civil war too, um, I mean, okay, first of all, I never went to Syria. Uh, my family would definitely uh, not be happy if I ever did that. Uh, but we would go onto the Golan Heights all the time. And I mean, you can, you can watch the war happen, or at least at that point you could. Um, and then Seth and I also did reporting where we went into Jordan um, to try and talk to Syrian refugees and see how Jordan was helping with the, the refugees there. Um, uh, so, you, Sorry to interrupt. Did you want to go to Syria? I, at that point, no. <laughs> um, it just didn't feel... Um, I, I mean, I, I can't remember exactly how I felt, but, uh, looking back now, I think that, um, it just seemed too, too unstable. Um, whereas when, so, uh, it got to be 2015 and we've been following this 
war against ISIS and all the stories that were coming out about the um, the heroism of the Kurdish Peshmerga um, and their fighting forces and the female fighters and things like that. And so we thought that the best entryway into kind of covering that war on the ground uh, was to go to Kurdistan. Um, and again, Seth was like, well, I don't really want to go by myself. And I was like, well, I'm happy to go. <laughs> And I, re I remember being in our office and we really didn't tell anybody and we just kind of went to an empty desk and we pulled out our computers and we like booked our flights and um, so <laughs> we're like, what do you book? Uh, we, um, we, we flew from Tel Aviv to Amman, Jordan, and then from Amman to Erbil in Northern Iraq. You um, do that. Okay. And at that point, um, Seth and I, I think we're both using our American passports, um, but I had uh, Israeli work visas in mine, um, but we didn't need a, a visa to go into uh, Kurdistan, Northern Iraq, and nobody blinked an eye at my Israeli uh, stamps and um, work visa stickers. Mm -hmm. um, but we had also like, we had also made contact with people there um, to see what the feeling and I, and I think there were other Israeli journalists who had gone there too. And there was this feeling that the Kurds um, liked Israel. Um, there wasn't a very, there wasn't really animosity. And so we felt that that would be one of the safer ways to go and um, cover the war. So we left on, we left on like a, a Wednesday night or something like that, because I was editor of a magazine at that point. So like Wednesday day, I sent my magazine to, to press. And then we like went to the airport um, flew to Iraq and we just spent like, you know, two or three days, I guess like three days, like just doing a whirlwind of reporting. And we flew back Sunday morning to Israel and we had our um, editorial meeting at the Jerusalem Post. And so Seth and I came like straight from the airport and we didn't tell anybody that we had gone and we didn't post on social media. And we showed up at the meeting and they're like, so, okay, Laura, like, what do you have for this week's uh, magazine? And I was like, well, Seth and I just came back from Iraq. So <laughs> you literally didn't tell anyone at the Jerusalem Post that you went into Iraq. We didn't tell. I mean, I didn't even tell my family. I mean, I don't tell my family very much of what I do, but. Uh... <laughs> it's funny, too, because it's 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 like, yeah, you, what are you going to say? You're gonna do you know that opening up? scene in Wonder Woman? Did you see Wonder Woman? Did you see it? Yeah. Yes. And she's like, no, I didn't see She's like she saves an entire like museum full of children against these mega terrorists and like saves the world from this bomb that was gonna mm -hmm. blow up the city. And then she's back at work on Sunday and he's like, Oh, Diana, what did you do this week? And she, oh, not watch. Oh, you're boring. You need to get out more. It's like but I'm sure the war zone. But it, wait, but, 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 but in all in all in all seriousness, I'm I'm sure when you were there it was like, I mean, obviously there's an intrigue to it when you come back and you tell people that you were in, you know, Iraq over the weekend, but Iraq and northern in northern Iraq, Kurdistan is, is from what I understand, it's, it's remarkably now remarkably normal. Well, let's ask. Uh, and was it was, it was, at the it was then too. Was like, yeah. Oh, like, this is all that this is like, I, I was expecting. Something. I mean, we'll, we know this, like you guys live in Israel. I lived in Israel. Like you could be in one place and there's a war raging somewhere else and your life goes on as normal. And right. even, even the fact I remember being in Jerusalem in 2000 and, 14 and and we had sirens um and then everybody was at the bar as soon like after you know iron dome had like shut them down um so i guess there's that element of like you have to keep on living um but it was also like there was a there was a frontline position and the frontline position was miles away from 
Airbill, the the capital city, and 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 life went on. But of course, I mean, everyone has is connected to to the war that was going on. So, just first of all, just to point out to our our listeners and viewers who who aren't aware, there there Kurdistan obviously is not a country, but it is an ethnic group. It's a um, an ethnic group that spans Iraq, which they have autonomy, uh, Eastern Turkey, Northern Syria, if I'm not mistaken, and mm-hmm. Northwestern Iran. Mm-hmm. And it's the largest ethnic group, uh, I think, in the world that doesn't have its own country. Yes. But they do have autonomy. And so you flew the, the um, I, know, I know Seth, I'm assuming you as well, covered um, the Syrian Kurds because they, you know, this entire time of the Syrian civil war, you know, it wasn't clear who were the good guys, who were the bad guys, Al-Qaeda affiliates, ISIS affiliates, Hezbollah affiliates, and then, you know, the Iranian-backed militias, but it was the Kurds who were, you could say, you know, as far as we're concerned, as far as the West is concerned, the Kurds were kind of the good guys this entire time, and they were trying, you know, their little enclave in uh, Rojava um, in northern Syria. So how you reported on it from, from Iraq, did you also go into Turkey to kind of the border area? Uh, I didn't. Um... I think I think Seth did um, the one the one trip uh, the one reporting trip I took to Turkey we um, we went into Istanbul and Ankara and it was mo- mostly focused on kind of like where was Turkey headed in general in that time and how it was um, uh, in kind of its posture in the world. Um, but was- that was in two. Gosh, I can't even remember. Maybe it was 2015 too. Was this before um, or after the uh, the supposed coup and the arrest of like thousands of people? It was sorry. It was before. It, it might have been. It might have been 2000. I think it was 2014 because when we went there, it was it was around December 2014 because when we had went there, the war was the war in Israel um, with Hamas was was ceasefire. There was a ceasefire. <laughs> And, but there was a lot of um, hostility among uh, the Turkish government, the ruling uh, party, uh, AKP, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm great, yeah, um, uh, against against Israel for for what they um, what they did to to the Gaza Strip. And so we met with a, um, uh, a AKP um, politician, and um, he wasn't. He didn't have very many nice things to say about Israel. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so Turkey. Um, well, let's jump back to Kurdistan for a second, to Iraqi Kurdistan. So, I mean, anyone, I guess, who follows Middle East kind of foreign policy knows that the Iraqi Kurds, are they're not hostile to Israel. They're pretty much pro-West. But what, what's the sense? I mean, it's still got to be disconcerting as, uh, as a reporter uh, coming from Israel, uh, possibly even, I don't know, maybe being a woman going into kind of like the backwoods of the Middle East. What was the sense like uh, going in there? And then what was your sense of how they felt about about Israel? Uh, So I went to Kurdistan in 2015 and 2016. And both times as a woman, I felt really, really safe, um, specifically with the Kurds. Um, I felt acknowledged. I felt protected. I felt... um, like a human. <laughs> um, like I just felt, I felt like normal. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, so that was, it was a really good experience. And I, um, I very much, um, very much felt for, for the Kurds in their aspirations for 
that they wanted their own state. Um, and when I, I mean, it's, it's crazy. 2016 is so long ago now. I mean, four or five years ago. Um, so when I left Israel and um, after my last trip to Kurdistan, when I first came back to the U.S. and I arrived in D.C., there was a lot of um, uh, hopefulness among the Kurds that they were going to have this referendum for statehood and that they were going to position themselves to, to become independent. And we saw that all just kind of come crashing down and then just going on through throughout um, the Trump presidency, um, the issue of the Kurds just became lower and lower and lower in priority until um, they were basically offered up for, for slaughter. As they always kind of are. It seems. What's happening? The Turks. Turks. Yeah. What's going on as far as that goes now? Um, I haven't, I haven't reported on the Kurds um, in, in a little bit, but um, I, I, I wouldn't want to say anything that that isn't true, but um, I would say that, I mean, at the moment there are things that are stable um, there was something interesting uh, that I think it was last year. Um, it must it must have been last year. There was a Republican congressman who made like a surprise trip to northeastern Syria, um, and uh, Seth actually tipped me off. He like saw it on Twitter, and he's like, "Hey, like, how's this?" And um, uh, look at this congressman. Uh, and I knew the people that there was this, this American family that. Um, is in northeastern Syria. I'm not sure if they're still there, but they were very involved in the um, in the fight against ISIS, helping with like kind of humanitarian rescue missions where they would go like um, help rescue civilians. And they went into northeastern Syria and they were helping um, deliver humanitarian um, assistance, food and medicine and whatever they needed. Um, and so they already had a relationship with the Republican congressman. And so when he went over there, they kind of gave him a, a guide um, and toured him around uh, the area that was under assault from Turkey at that point. Um, and so I was, you know, the Republican congressman didn't really want to talk to me so much about his visit, uh, but I was able to get uh, this, uh, um, Dave Eubank is, um, is the American. Uh, he runs an organization called Free Burma Rangers. Um, and so I got him on the phone while he was in Syria and uh, told me about the visit and everything and wrote, you know, a nice little report about that, bringing kind of awareness that, uh, you know, the Kurds are still there and, and still under a very uh, difficult situation. What was the connection of Iraqi Kurds to their Syrian brethren, I guess, during this whole time? Uh, what, what could you tell from your visit to Iraqi Kurdistan about what was happening in the Syrian civil war? I mean, it's, it's very, it's super complicated, right? Uh, yeah. That was kind of the whole other element of the story that didn't really rise to the conversation was the difference in political ideologies and and kind of groups of people that separated Syrian Kurds and Iraqi Kurds. Um, and so Iraqi Kurds, uh, they, in the Peshmerga, um, were very much you know, they had a lot on their plate in general to to fight back against ISIS during that time. Right. The Iraqi ones, if I'm not mistaken, the Iraqi Peshmerga, Peshmerga, those who seek death. Is that what that means? Right. Am I, am oh. I those who seek. The, death. No, no. I think it's something like uh, the, 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 they don't fear death. They don't fear death. Those confront, who don't fear, I'm going to look this confront up. Confront death. So wait, the, the Iraqi ones were fighting ISIS in Iraq. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And, the Syri- and the Syrians were fighting um, ISIS in, in Syria as well. But uh, I mean, it's a very big place. <laughs> yeah. 
what 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 like what are some crazy i don't know stories that you heard or saw or or scenes what what's life like for a, a peshmerga fighter like taking on isis i mean we kind of don't even talk about isis anymore but it was like one of the greatest scourges of this decade in the region like they literally conquered you know an area the size of texas for like for a couple of years like what, what kind of things did you see or hear I, my my impression when i look back um and and i i remember thinking this um kind of as the the as the war was kind of coalescing against the um coming up at the point of the um the offensive in against Mosul to root out ISIS and Mosul um it felt to me that this was the most successful campaign of the international community working together with local partners to to defeat this this horrendous enemy um that the the Kurds and the Iraqi army um really took the the lead on um on pushing back ISIS and defeating ISIS. Um, and at that point, it felt that it was really working, that you had this coordination and you had um, all these international partners, what was it, like 70, um, 70 countries or something like There's that. There's a huge coalition, yeah. Right, the coalition. Um, and, and really... Uh, gave and really gave helped gave the tools to to allow for this um for this defeat of isis to happen um gosh sorry it's you know it's yeah. it's been so long okay. um <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting though just that like this isn't at all to get into the details of 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 you know isis as an organization or whatnot or, or the events that transpired but it is interesting how quickly we forget. And it's interesting to yeah. use this as an example of how there are events that take place in the world that if you go back just a short amount of time, and we talk about four years as if it's this long, this long sense of, you know, long period. And, and, and I, and in many ways it is because so much has happened in the past four years or it's the ridiculous, or the ridiculous past year I mean, or the past three weeks. It's, it's like I, the world is so fast now, but, but it, it is something that that was, ISIS was a big, this was a huge deal. deal. It, it uh, was a massive, massive deal. And I remember when we would put together, I mean, you would get called to do briefings about what's going on in the Middle East. And ISIS probably took up a good portion of that time when you were yeah. briefing. I worked with people who were involved in that. I have, you know, personal connections to things that had to do, had to do with uh, victims of ISIS. Uh, it, it, it just seems like I haven't, I mean, COVID happened and it took over the news cycle in, this, in a way that nothing has ever taken over the news cycle since maybe World War II and the concept of the war being on the front page of the newspaper. But but ISIS has not been in any news that I've read it's true. for legitimately over a year. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the previous time that I heard ISIS being mentioned in the news was every time Trump would boast about him defeating ISIS. But, but no, for which, like a solid few years, it was literally everything... Everyone in the Middle East right. is talking about ISIS, Daesh. People were talking about how the United States and Iran were working together tacitly to defeat ISIS. We were, weren't we? Yeah, in Syria. Yeah. The United States and Iran were both fighting ISIS from the opposite, right? I mean, you were... It, it's insane. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of hope that maybe that there were, there were common interests there, but I don't think that obviously panned out. Um, I will, I will say, I, I just remembered a story about um, 
what was interesting about the trip because we did we did so much. But um, one of the things was um, when I first arrived in Airbill, um, we had uh, there was this American guy who was living there and was kind of working as a fixer um, to connect journalists with. Um, with people on the ground, he took us to a refugee camp um, and uh, took us around Airbill City um, and introduced us to to some people. But one of the things he had asked me before we arrived was to bring him um, a Bible. Uh, gosh, and again, excuse me, I, it's been so long. But uh, mm-hmm. what the Tanakh, like yeah. for Jewish prayers, <laughs> um, it was from Jerusalem. You know, very special, right? He, this this kid was this guy is Jewish. Um, so so I bring him a Bible and. Um, and when we, when Seth and I left Airbill and we went to one of the frontline positions, it was actually near this, um, this, uh, this village um, that had the, the tomb of Nahum uh, in one it. One of the great Hebrew prophets. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we drove into this village. The village was very interesting in general. Um, and I forget. It was super, super hot. I remember also. Um, but there was this one house in the village that was like filled with all of these um, like Christian paraphernalia. There was like Jesus everywhere and things like that. And we stopped by and we, we said hi to the lady who lived there. And she's like, yeah, people used to come here all the time because she sees all my Jesus. People see my, all the Jesuses that I have. Um, and then we're asking around the village, like, where's the tomb of Nahum? And we come to this, just like this kind of, uh, um, it's a hole in the ground. Um, and there's this ramshackle, ramshackle, uh, like shed roof, um, and a little bit of a fence and, and, and the tomb was, uh, was inside. And, you know, we kind of just took some pictures and, um, and just kind of took in the, the feeling of it. Uh, and then later, um, maybe a few weeks, few months or something, um, the American guy, his name is Zach Huff, uh, who was in our bill and was our fixer who I'd given the Bible to, he ended up visiting the tomb of Nahum and then he ended up leaving the Bible there. So whoever wanted to come could pray. And it just felt like a very sweet connection that it had come from Israel and, um, and, and brought to Kurdistan and now at this, uh, this tomb. So, so is life kind of back to normal there in, in Northern Iraq, Kurdistan? As far as I, mean, you know? I, I haven't. <laughs> Hasn't been in the news. I, I can say that much. I think everybody, you know, everybody's just trying to live their lives. Uh, everybody's trying to deal with COVID. Do you know where Zach is now? Where the fixer is now? Fixer. Yeah, he's in he's in America. Uh, you know, he's, show he's, about him. he's doing he's doing great. Wow. Cool. Um, <laughs> what was he doing there? Like he was just, it just it, he found a job as a fixer in. It just seems like very random. Like you 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 wind. I up. mean, our mine and Seth's trips were pretty random too. Like, and I was so I was so young also, and I was like, okay, Seth, whatever you want to do, like, sure, let's go to a war zone. Why not? <laughs> let's Look, there, there's a, there is definitely, uh, you know, maybe maybe this is as good as good as an opportunity as any to share to share my connection to this whole story. Um, it, th- there seems to be for many people, especially people, you know, when they're starting in their careers, uh, a desire to find like their story and, and to be a part of it and to, and to get into it in a serious, serious way. And I, uh, I had, a, I, around the time that you were in, uh, uh, Jerusalem in 2012, a good friend of mine went to Syria to, uh, to cover 
the story of what was going on in Syria. Uh, my friend is, is of course, uh, for people that know me, my friend is Steven Sotloff. And Steve was my roommate at the IDC, uh, at the, at the Inter Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya, and he was one of my best friends. And um, after my, uh, sorry, in 2012, he was still in Florida, but in 2013, he went to my wedding here in Israel. And he, after my wedding in Israel, he went to Turkey and he crossed the border into, into Syria. And then, and then we didn't hear from Steve ever, ever again. Um, but, but Steve for years before that was so, so, so passionate about this story of, of people that were suffering here in this region. And it didn't matter who they were or what their background was. It was, it was, you know, he didn't have, it wasn't a political thing for him. It was, there are people that are suffering in this region. I have to tell their story. That's, you know, nothing else matters more than that for me. And, 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 and that was what he would say to me all the time. Like, like I have to, I have to speak for these people because if I don't go there, no one will know, you know, no one will know this. They'll, they'll know that this event is happening, but they won't know the story of whoever I'm talking about that personal story. They won't, they won't know that. And these people have to have their story be told. Um, so of course, you know, people that followed that story understand that, uh, that Steve was, taken capture or he was taken prisoner by ISIS and, and held for a ransom. Um, and it wasn't clear whether or not they were actually ever going to release him. Uh, the, uh, he wasn't, of course, in the end, and he was uh, grotesquely murdered uh, by, by, by ISIS in, uh, I believe it was 2015. Um, and, and that's always going to be my connection to this period of time and my connection to this sure to this organization called ISIS, which, which we don't hear much about anymore, but you know, there's a lot of people of whom it's, it's a very personal story for. And I remember at that time, because of that, and because of what happened to other journalists, uh, such as his cellmate, James Foley, uh, it, it, it just seems like, you know, we would talk about the, even here in Israel, I remember we would talk about them differently than we would talk about Hamas terrorists, for example. Hamas was always, you know, an awful terrorist organization that targeted Jews in, in, around the world and here in Israel. But ISIS was like a special kind of evil. It was yeah. like a very. I, and at that, at that point, when, when we went over to, to report on it, I mean, it was my, my personal feelings at that time was I was really demoralized by what was happening in Israel because I have Palestinian friends. Um, and I was living in Jerusalem and I obviously have Israeli friends. I worked for an Israeli newspaper and it, it just felt like um, the, the war that was happening in 2014 was just so heartbreaking because there were people suffering on both sides and um, there was no really good way. You just wanted it to stop and, and, and we couldn't find a way out of that. Um, but with ISIS, it was like, that is just, that's just evil. There's a very clear... Yeah good and bad that's what it's, and yeah. there's the side of good and these these are like the nazis like they are just absolutely evil. Yeah. yeah i mean that's an interesting point like you know as much as we hate hamas here and we hate hamas because they literally try to kill us every chance they get hamas isn't going around targeting other people like it for them it's a conflict over this territory and the people who live here i'm not i'm not trying to give credit to right hamas. they would they would describe their struggle as a struggle of national liberation or the struggle of national liberation whether you like them or not and ISIS just, yeah, it seemed to be like a Nazi, like they're trying to take over the world and they will enslave and murder. Um, what, what brought you into journalism? Was it, was it, this looks cool? Was it kind of a deeper ideal that you had? Like what kind of drew you to the profession? 
I was always interested, I think, in, in telling stories. And you know, when I went to university, I, I did um, communications and sociology. Um, but after I graduated, I really didn't. And, and I also love travel so much. <laughs> and I wasn't um, really sure what I was going to do or how I could do it. And I wasn't sure how to get started in journalism. Um, and yeah, I was just, you know, living my life and trying to think about what, um, what kind of career I could have. And so I did a few different things. Um, and uh, in 2012, was I was working at a hospital in New York and I was working in administration um, and it was a very good job. I was working at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center's amazing hospital. Um, and a lot of people, uh, um, a lot of my friends from college, they worked there too. It was like a good job for people right out of college. Um, and it was also kind of a stepping stone that if you wanted to get into the medical field, um, you could, uh, it, it was a great stepping stone. Um, but, and my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, my sister's a nurse, my other sister works in medical sales. So uh, it was kind of like, okay, Laura, like we're, <laughs> we're waiting for you. Um, and when I was working there, I was like, you know, this is a, a really meaningful job, but it's just not for me. Like, I just, I just don't want to work in medicine. I don't want to work in hospitals. Um, and so I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And that's when I did, uh, I did birthright to Israel. Um, and when I was on that trip, it just awakened in me this passion um, and this feeling of, of myself that I hadn't felt in so long, um, just being curious and, and being in a different part of the world and um, being so confused as to what was happening in this conflict that people were so, um, so focused on, but I, I really didn't understand it. Um, and I just felt that I had to come back there and I had to learn about it. And the way that I wanted to do that was journalism. And so when it got to the end of that 10 day trip, they brought us to like this career fair and said, oh, these are all the different ways that you can come back to Israel. And I said, okay, where's the journalism one? Um, and they had a, a Massa program um, where I could do an internship. And so I, uh, I took the information and I applied for it. Um, and I, so I like, I returned back to the U S it was January and, um, I decided that I was going to go back to Israel and do this program. And so I was home in the U S for about six months before I just packed up my apartment, um, hopped on a plane and, and started the adventure in Israel. Um, and I, sorry, had you been to Israel before your birthright trip? No, no. I had seen some friends who had gone there and I mean, I, I was in that mindset of like, aren't there just camels everywhere? <laughs> yes. Camels and, and rockets and terrorists. When you were growing up, were, were you, was your family like connected to the Jewish life? Were you? Or, or no, not, not particularly. My, my mom is Jewish and my dad's Catholic and we were raised in just a pretty much secular household. Um, always knew that I was Jewish, but it was kind of like, you know, um, just, just being American, right? Like, celebrate Christmas because everybody celebrates Christmas. We'll celebrate Hanukkah because it keeps you a bit connected to, um, to your Jewish side. Uh, but it was, you know, it wasn't, it, sports were more a big thing in our house, you know, <laughs> Jewish sports. And no, I was kidding. <laughs> a small pamphlet, Jew, great Jewish athletes. Great Jewish athletes. No, there are pamphlet. great Jewish athletes. Um, and we're still trying to get some on the show. Um, <laughs> so many to choose from. So how does, so you came here, you became a journalist. Um, covering obviously everyone, I'm assuming anyone who's in journalism here has to cover some aspect of it because it's just part of our life here. What, 
you know, how did you view the Israeli-Palestinian conflict at that time, you know, not really having known so much about it and then all of a sudden working for a newspaper that's covering it? Yeah, I mean, I just, I knew, I knew nothing. Like I knew broad strokes, I guess. Um, And it was, it's interesting because obviously when I first arrived in Israel, the first thing that I the, the thing that was at the top of my mind was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But then by the time I left, um, it's that issue is not what Israel is about. It's not what the Middle East is about. Um, and so it just kind of became a part of the bigger story of, of everything. Um, but it was very interesting for me when I first arrived and I did try to take efforts to engage myself um, uh, with with groups of people where I could just like learn from both sides and and see you know what are people trying to do to bridge this divide of um, conflict and and tension and animosity and things like that. Was your interest always more telling the story and trying to reflect truth as much as possible, or do you feel like you have kind of an activism side to yourself from from within journalism? Because you know we've had we've had some journalists on the show. Um, and one of the things we talk about is uh, that we've talked about and kind of that interest is that it seems like, you know, people used to just report the facts, right? And then let people make up their opinions. And now journalism has gotten into kind of trying to advocate for one side or another. Do you feel you're doing one of those things? Do you feel like you're telling the story or you have kind of like you're trying to push for one side or the other? I think it's always a struggle to... I mean, for myself to check myself to make sure that I'm not being an activist and that if I, I I heard somebody say, I don't remember who said it um, or where I heard it, but it, it wasn't about advocating for one thing, but it was about justice. And if something is not just, then we should write about it. Um, And so I think maybe that is one of the things that drives me the most that if, if something is wrong, like why is it wrong and who is it affecting? And, um, you know, what's, what's the story behind it? Um, and as you know, at working at the Jerusalem post just affords you so many opportunities to, to talk to different people. Um, and it's not about the story that, I'm interested in, but it's about, you know, what's actually happening. Um, So I just tried to stay open as much as I could. Did your views change after a time from what you thought you were going to see to what you ended up seeing after a few years? What I used to tell people, and it's, yeah, it's kind of funny because what now it's been, it's, it's, it's four years that I'm back in the U.S. So um, yeah, it's like, it's a very long time um, ago, for, it feels like. Um, but I do remember it, trying to explain to people that um, the more that I learned, the more I realized I didn't know or the more questions that I had. Um, so, I mean, I think by the time I left, I was like, I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. You mean like college kids on both sides of the ideological divide or like, yeah, we know everything. <laughs> no, no. The more you, the more you learn, the more you realize there's just, a, there's a lot of layers to it. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of layers of complexity. So, so then what kind of made you want to go back to the States? 
Well, I think by, by the time I'd reached my, my fourth year in Israel, it was kind of a decision of what did I want my life to look like? Did I want to fully commit myself to Israel and become a citizen? Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't have, I, I don't have any family in Israel. Um, and it, I, I think the, the biggest motivating factor was that I had been away from my family for four years. And I have, um, you know, both my parents and I have uh, two brothers and two sisters. And my one brother is um, married and his kids are, um, they're, they're on, on the brink of uh, teenagehood now. Um, and now my other brother, he recently got married and just had a baby. Um, and so for the past four years that I've been in America, the time that I've spent with my family has really been so amazing. Um, and so I don't think that uh, I could actually live abroad ever again, because I just really enjoy being close to home. Um, so that that was a big thing. And then of course, the salaries in Israel are very low. We were talking before before we went on air, we were talking about how I contemplated switching over to journalism a few years ago and just the salary that they offered me. And this was after I made faces and they tried to go up as much as they could. And I was just like, look, I'm not making a lot of money now, but like the salary, it would have been a major drop to become a journalist here. And I just couldn't do it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And, and also I think I, uh, I think I was a little bit burned out on, um, on the Middle East uh, specifically, and I wanted to, I know what, um, and, and I mean, I- I totally, totally understand that. And for the record, and a lot of people are gonna be upset that I'm saying this, and it's bizarre because I live here, but it's, it's I, I think you get to a certain point where, um, you know, you either really, really embrace the current events of this region to a point where you, like, like Dan here, become some of, a, of, of an expert in them and you're very passionate about the story and you widen that lens where it's not just, you know, Israel and the Palestinians, but where does Israel fit in geopolitically in the right. region and where does the region affect, you know, and, and, and inter- interests that go on between superpowers and the axis and, uh, you know, in China, it just becomes this wide, wide thing. And then there's people like me who I remain informed about those things because I live here, but like, I'm tired of it in yeah. a way where yeah. it's just like, eh. yeah. Yeah, there's more I, to life for me. I mean, there's more to life, uh, you know, for everybody. But like, it's it's you have to if if you're living here, and I think this this is probably, and, and I don't know what I'm talking about, and I'm a moron, so don't don't listen to what I'm saying right now. I might be totally <laughs> wrong, but but if you're a journalist in the state of Israel, especially if you're an English language journalist in Israel who's covering Israel for an international audience and not for a domestic audience, you're going to find yourself writing about the conflict more often than not in its various forms. And if that's the story that you're passionate about and you're going to live that for life, great. Um, And I'm sure that there's a danger about that too, because then you become interested in the conflict perpetuating itself to a certain extent because you're, you're, you're living relies upon it. That's an interesting point. I mean, let me ask you this. You worked, you worked for an Israeli newspaper, even though it's an English language newspaper, it's, it's an Israeli newspaper. And then you went to work for an American Jewish newspaper, and now you work for an American non-Jewish, right? Yeah. Did you ever get a sense? I I get the sense all the time. You know, when you read Israeli news, you read about everything that's happening in society. You read about the politics. You read about culture. You read about religion. You read about, you know, all these things. And my sense, and, and I don't know, I'd love to hear your sense from it. When foreign reporters, not not English language, but when foreign reporters are covering Israel, it seems to be all focused on either 
the conflict or you know something ultra orthodox related like is is that your sense that there's just a very limited view of how foreign reporters cover israel it's not that I don't think that there's a limited view, but there's limited space for what stories can make it into foreign publications or make it into um, like an, an American publication about a foreign country. And the story that is going to rise to the level of consciousness in America is going to be something that involves America. Um, and if Israel is uh, in conflict with the Palestinians, um, it brings up this conversation about like, well, we're like one of the biggest funders of Israel's military. So what responsibility do we bear? So I think that's why, um, and, and that's, so I think that's why it's, it's the most, um, it's the most known story and it's the most topical story. Um, I don't think it's always right. And there's a lot of journalists who um, speak much better uh, than me about uh, the, the narratives that are expected versus the narratives that are um, actually real um, coming out of Israel and how it's presented in, um, in the international media. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, when I came there, like your podcast name, there's so much more nuanced Israel and there's so many more stories yep. too. I mean, I could have, I could have stayed in Israel, right. And I wouldn't have to write about the conflict all the time. There's so much happening um, in the country. Um, but, uh, but for my, for my own interests and things like that, I just happened to, to be focusing on conflict a little bit more. Um, and, and then also, so by the time I left and I came back to the U S I did want to broaden my reporting, um, outside of the middle East. And I wanted to come to DC and I wanted to be reporting on the, the place that was making the decisions that affected the whole world. And from this position now, I mean, it's a very big world. <laughs> Sure. I, want, I want to jump into that in a second, actually, before we do, before we do, uh, I'm just curious if we go back to kind of just a question that dawned on me while we were, while we jumped to the Middle East and back. Um, we were talking about the, the events on January 6th on Capitol Hill and the people who feel like the vote was stolen. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about polarization, the kind of what you see being a reporter covering politics, uh, covering American society from Washington. Um, do you sense that, well, obviously there's polarization, but wh where do you think it's coming from? And do you think that following January 6th and then following the inauguration of Biden, do you, do you think things are going to get worse or is this some kind of wake up moment and maybe America can, can find a way to heal? I think it's still too early to tell. I think there's a great deal of hope and optimism um, but I think a lot of the same, I think the, the conversations, um, that happen from people having such strong opinions on either side, um, are there and they're all, they'll always be there. I, I think with the Trump presidency, he elevated those conversations so that they dominated, um, the news cycle. And I think feel that we've seen just in the few weeks that he's been banned from Twitter, that we don't have to, we don't have to write about what he's saying and we don't have to acknowledge what he's thinking. Um, mm. And so that has calmed things down just by virtue of that. I mean, I, I, I in my opinion, um, 
and if, if you look at our news cycle now, the big thing is, uh, is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Are you guys familiar with her? She's we're not. No, that's the Jewish Jewish space laser. Oh, the space laser lady. Yeah. Yeah. So she's dominating the news cycle at the moment. <laughs> and um, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a bit of a return to normal where it's a you know, there's like some scandal with a congressperson um, and. It still has its vestiges of Trump-ish stuff. It's 100 percent, right? Crazy and and. But but it occupies the conversation in in a space where it's like happening to the side because it dropped she's, it down. It dropped it down a level, right? It's yeah, because she's not the leader of the free world. You know, like her beliefs are not um, are not kind of uh, illuminating policy at at a at a huge level. Um, so like, okay, we'll yeah. report on her and see what's, we'll see what will happen and stuff like that. But um, she, how desensitized she's, we got to, to people saying crazy things on, on air, on social media. And it's like, we got so desensitized to it because it was so much of it. And, and all the time. And the and Trump and it, barrage of crazy things. And it's like, no, well, when he someone was, says the, something crazy, yeah. we should focus on it because it's crazy. And but, he, but he was, People will write about the man that is Donald Trump for generations to come. It, it, it's he's a, in and of itself, it's a fascinating personality type, right? And 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 he was very point blank and up and honest about who he was from the very beginning. I mean, you go back to his, you know, what was his name, Bobby Bush uh, in 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 the bus comments, you know, and 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 in locker room talk and all the kind of stuff that he used, to, you know, to say. And so come around the time when, you know, Stormy Daniels hit the hit the hit the scene. It was just like that would have been a major, major yeah. deal if it happened to any other president, including Bill Clinton. But it happened. You know, if it happens to Trump, it's just like, yeah, that that Donald Trump does sleep with porn stars and, and, he's, and pay them hush money yeah. and pay them hush money from a secret slush fund that, that is that is lawyer deals. And it's just like that, that was that was a normal thing. And, and up until the very, very end, and, and this is just, again, I'm a moron, and this is my own personal feeling. It's like, I was not at all, I was shocked by what happened on January 6th, but I was not surprised. Yeah, that's kind of the, yeah, kind of like the, the slogan for the, for the Trump presidency, right? Shocked, but not surprised. And it was like Bush, had, Bush too had shock and awe. Shock and awe. Trump had shock <laughs> shocked, but not surprised. surprised. Um, and, and, and Biden will have us uh, taking a cat nap in front of the TV. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> he, but, but with that being said, he is um, retired to Florida, which is funny because that's what you do. You retire to Florida. So he's retired to Florida for his post-presidency. And do you think he'll be back in 2024? Do you think we'll see the Patriot Party, which is, by the way, the, the best Trumpy name for a, a political party? I, only, I actually want to use that to, fr to frame my question because it's connected. So we talk also a lot about social media and kind of the role of it. And, you know, Twitter obviously froze his account or kicked him off of, of his account. And that's how he was talking to everyone. Do you think that move and then tying into to Benny's question here, do you think it's going to go away and kind of the Republicans will calm down and we'll go back to, you know, have, you know, kind of, I don't want to say regular, but kind of regular Republicans and regular Democrats? Or do you think, now Trump is going to start his own party and his own movement, and, and we're going to have this third, possibly even significant movement of, uh, our, our, what did our guest uh, call them last week? Fake triots two weeks ago? Yeah, fake triots. 
I think that's the the inflection point we're we're kind of at is how much will Trump dominate the Republican Party, um, and how much will the Republican Party continue to have a place for Donald Trump versus how much will he want to break out on his own? Because the downside of him forming his own party is that it will take votes away from Republicans, and then uh, Democrats will. Uh, always be the majority. So as a Republican strategist, you probably don't want Trump to form his own party. Um, mm. But we still have to get through the impeachment trial. And what's going on? Uh, with that? It's still happening. <laughs> so yes, Donald Trump was impeached for um, for a second time on one article uh, for incitement uh, of an insurrection. And it was um, delivered to the Senate. And I guess they made a so an arrangement uh, where uh, the the trial will will start, and I think maybe maybe a week's time, um, uh, so that um, just to get through some business in the Senate with getting uh, Biden's cabinet uh, cabinet nominees confirmed and things like that. Um, but it's it's not clear how the how the Senate trial is going to go. I think uh, what some of the reporting is showing now that most Republicans would vote against a conviction. Um, and it's 50, 50 in the house, uh, with 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans. So, I, I mean, I think that will be a barometer of, of how Donald Trump is viewed. And of course there's the half of society. I would, I, I don't know the percentages, but there's a very large portion of society that views this impeachment trial as politically motivated by the Democrats. Um, so that's also great fodder for like building up support um, and it, it building up support for Republicans. And do you want to like cause a schism in that by having Donald Trump go off on his own and, and bring all those people with him? So it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting to see what the course of the next, I guess, well, actually year and a half, maybe because we have the 2022 um, midterm elections. Um, Republicans did very well in the 2020 elections. Um, so they're going to want to do, they're going to want to take back that the house and the Senate in 2022. And so what role will Donald Trump play in that? And then come 2024, we have so many Republicans that are really looking for their moment in the sun, uh, for running for president. And I mean, as a journalist, as a human being, I'm not excited. As a journalist, I <laughs> I am excited to kind of see a lot of these people who are like full-fledged Donald Trump supporters, if it's possible that he's able to run or something in 2024, uh, what is that kind of competition going to be like with uh, some of these uh, Republicans who, who want to run for president? Maybe someone like uh, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, maybe... Senator Hawley, maybe Senator Cruz, like my hope is that by then and we'll be past the first uh, Biden administration, I think that many people will probably be in a place where they'll want somebody younger to be president of the United States. I mean, let's not forget that Trump's going to be like, what, 80 or 78 or something by that point in time. Um, I'll, I'll say this, and this is my maybe my little ranty opinion about what's going on. I, I think that we had David Mannheim on this podcast. David Mannheim was a uh, catastrophic risk um, analyst. Still is. Still is. Uh, and this was in the beginning of COVID, and he was talking about 
COVID as the disease and, and how it works. And, and we still didn't know what it was. And it was like this, you know, that he was our, our first COVID sort of guest. And he didn't have COVID. He talked. No, he talked yeah, about COVID. <laughs> the public just COVID. to be clear. I mean, he may have had COVID since then. We don't, I, I don't know. know. I, don't I should know. check it. Oh, we're not prejudiced against people who have COVID. No, no get no. COVID. <laughs> well, my best friends. You know, hope, hope you do well. Um, be healthy. But David uh, said, and, and, and we'll, I will always remember him saying this, that him and his colleagues were talking about um, when COVID first happened, like, oh, there's like, you know, there's probably a plan for this. And if this would happen in, in you know, uh, you know, governments have, have all kinds of, you know, sort of uh, contingency plans for how to deal with this. And, you know, it's going to be okay, but, oh, but, oh, that would have happened in any other administration, but now we're in the Trump administration. And wow, does that exacerbate everything? And I got to look back at that because now we're afterwards, we're, we're, we're post uh, Trump. And you look at everything that's transpired since COVID in the past year. And it's like, there was the entire Trump presidency up until that point. And then there's the Trump presidency after that point where I think things really went off the rails. And it's, it, you know, it seems like a lot of the people and you were there, you were, you were an eyewitness to this. It seems like a lot of the people that might've turned out on January 6th are people that were affected by COVID in the way that they had the time to turn out to an insurrection on January 6th. Mm. Meaning it wasn't <laughs> going to affect their jobs because maybe these people are unemployed. I would have to probably suspect that many of them maybe live with their parents. Oh, uh, well, no, I don't know. I, no, like, no, I, I, I'm saying this not because I'm trying to don't, to, don't, don't diminish. I'm not diminishing them, but no, I'm talking I, about I, a profile of who these people. I don't, may... I don't think that's true at all. No, because they found one. I think I, I, I'm not certain on the statistic, but it was a very high number. It was like one in four or one in five people had a military background um, that uh, that have so far been arrested as taking part in the insurrection. And there's lots of people who were arrested and um, or who were identified as taking part in the insurrection and lost their jobs. So not necessarily unemployed, but there is this element that there the 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 feeling among this group of people was they felt that um the democrats were going to destroy the country that the democrats were going to do all the things that donald trump said that that, they that accu- accused them or or tried to paint them as doing such as they're going to shut down the economy or they're going to you know put you in your homes or uh, you know keep you away from covid make you wear masks all the time you don't think um, Sorry, sorry, I have to just say that you don't think that the people that would turn out to participate in something like that, I'm not talking about the co- to show up to a demonstration. I'm saying to actually breach the perimeter and go in are people that probably feel like they have nothing to lose. No, no I think that the people who breached the perimeter were people who had planned to breach the perimeter. Um, I think that what is going to come out in the investigation is how well organized it was um, and who were the people behind that. Do you think it was organized? That's what seems, I, I think that they're building a case of a conspiracy against people um, who were planning and were prepared. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of reporting out there about the people who made it into the Senate chamber. Um, and there was a lot of organization happening online uh, to begin with. Um, so this was not not spontaneous. And, and I will say that the feeling that I had being there um, was that I, I was, I was reflecting on this. Um, 
that there was this, this gleeful rage among people. They were so happy to be um, kind of thumbing their nose at authority, right? But Americans in general follow rules. If we see a line, we go into it, we stand in line, right? Um, if we see a fence, we don't cross that fence. And, <laughs> right. Um, so in so in one respect, um, so I was outside the Capitol and there was this penned off area, the fenced off area of um, some foreign journalists who um, were uh, uh, doing their live shots. And there were Trump supporters standing outside the fence, screaming at these journalists, like you're fake news, like you're the worst, you're the part of the problem. And they're on this fence and they're like pushing each other against this fence. And they realize that there's no one around watching this fence and they just removed it. They just stepped over it. And they realized that they had this power where nobody was holding them accountable. There was nobody around to tell them they can't do something. And it was and I and I saw this like happen, like, you know, they were standing on the steps of the Capitol and they're like, yeah, we need more people to stand. And then they just stood there and they're like, what do we do next? Um, there was uh, there's some skylights um, uh, on the on the plaza of the Capitol. And there were people who were like, yeah, let's try and break the skylights. And they tried to break it. But when they realized that they weren't having any effect, then they kind of abandoned it. And people were just kind of like walking around me like, yeah, I want to, I want to do something, but like, I don't know what to do. Like, I, I feel like I've got a rage and a power of destruction, but like, I, I don't know what to do. And there were like some police like standing off to the side and they were like, like, are you going to stop me? And it was just, it was, it was so bizarre. Um, so I, and I think if you watch some of the video, when there are people um, walking up to the west side of the Capitol building, there was a very, uh, very small fence. Um, but the people who pushed through that fence did so very violently, very violently. Um, and then once they pushed through, um, they started saying, everybody come on. And so I think there were people behind that. So then there's a very big mass of people came and were like, oh yeah, great. Everybody's moving this way. Like, let's go with them. So I think it's... I think it's complicated <laughs> to say the least. What does social media do to all this? What is, you know, we, we saw what, and we talk about this a lot, uh, both Benny and I are very interested in it, how the social media algorithms that are just meant to keep you glued to your screen just so they can make advertising money um, are, are a lot of what's been leading to this because, because um, they, they push you deeper into your own echo chamber in order to engage with you more. And I think it was inadvertent on the part of social media, but but it happened and kind of led to a lot of this. Um, have you had thoughts on where, you know, either from a legislative perspective or from a social perspective or from just even a consumer perspective, how we in this modern world should be engaging with social media and kind of this, you know, what we saw happen when social media goes goes nuts, right? Goes wild. Have you had thoughts on that about about what to do in that regard and and you know the effects we saw when. We just let consumerism and, and the big tech uh, uh, control social media for their own purposes and it led to this polarization. I, I think again, like we're seeing, we're seeing this issue evolve. After 2016, when it, it was, um, when it came to the public consciousness, how, how badly Russia had exploited social media to um, kind of, to whip up even further this polarization. Um, and then there was pressure on the social media companies to take down these coordinated um, uh, uh, campaigns. 
yeah, coordinated campaigns um, from Russia, from North Korea, from I think Iran also, from from many countries. So Facebook puts out quarterly reports of these um, inauthentic uh, behavior um, that they that they find. Um, And just recently, they um, I don't know if it was uh, Facebook or Twitter um, put out uh, a report on this North Korea um, mission that was uh, try was whatever they were doing, uh, but 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 took down a, a campaign of uh, bad actors from North Korea that were um, trying to um, trying to do some some bad things. I apologize, I, I don't no, have no, all no. the words. I, I, <laughs> um, I, I see these campaigns, and I see what kind of I, I see what I can assume are foreign campaigns meant to cause um, discord within the United States and weaken America from from within. I've read a lot about this, uh, talked a lot about this, I've studied this, but but I'm more concerned about the the internal divisions not coming from foreign agents. I'm concerned about, um, you know, social media. So, that, so um, what? Right. So I, I bring up the I bring up the foreign actors is because there was a real concerted effort to confront that. Um, and so by the time the 2020 election came around, we saw very little um, any foreign interference that we felt um, like. Uh, compromised our elections. But at the expense of that, there was not a focus on what the domestic threat was. Um, And that's what I think people are grappling with now is having to take down these, these areas where people can speak freely and come together freely to plot and to plan um, terror attacks against the US. I mean, when I think about January 6th, it was a terrorist attack, um, and there was a an intelligence failure to to prevent that. Um, and it's it's difficult to say. There is some reporting that um, President Trump downplayed the white nationalist threat because it was more politically advantageous for him to say that. Um, or, or, or he down, downplayed the right-wing um, white nationalist threat because it was more politically advantageous to um, say that Antifa, um, which is a loose term for people who are anti, groups that are anti-fascist, um, I guess, uh, to, for him to, to rile up kind of his supporters to say that like Antifa is the threat. Um, and that maybe the resources of the Justice Department weren't put towards um, confronting the, the, the threats that are breaking apart our society today. Do you remember we had, uh, we had a former, a very senior FBI agent, Ray Holcomb, on the show? Mm-hmm. Um, this guy co- covered extremism in America, headed up ta- national task forces. Um, really, really cool guy to talk to. And we we talked a lot about kind of extremism in the United States, and of course he's he's been retired for a few years, but he still keeps up on things. His sense was that, as far as right wing white supremacist, you know, ultra nationalist threats in America, there's nothing organized. Whereas he felt that Antifa is very organized, and so because not because it's more extreme, but because it's more organized, he felt that it was a lot more of a threat than anything coming from white supremacists today. I don't know if you've come across anything like that, you know, in your reporting or in your um, in your journalism. It's not something that 
or if anyone's talking about it in Washington, you know? Yeah, I would say that it doesn't, I, I guess that um, the, the organized threat of Antifa hasn't risen to the top of the conversation in a way that I'm very aware of um, and just seen it more as a, as a tool in the political conversation to kind of whip up supporters. I'd be curious to see, and I mean, I don't think there's an answer to this now, but I'd be curious to see in the next few years how that narrative changes now that there's a Democrat administration and kind of a more of a centrist Democrat administration and kind of where the Antifa versus kind of ultranationalist threat, you know, story goes. You're just kind of looking at it from an outsider. And I think that'd be really curious to watch. What kind of stories have you worked on lately? What are you working on now? Um, a lot of China, a lot of Iran. So again, I cover, I cover foreign policy. So I don't even really cover um, domestic uh, too much, but it might be interesting because the Biden administration has made kind of a commitment to better sell their foreign policy to the American people, feeling that the Obama administration didn't do a good enough job to show how important it is to have America um, in the, these international multilateral organizations, um, like at the forefront in the United Nations, within the World Health Organization, in the Paris Climate Agreement, so that um, because, because the Obama administration did not better sell it to the American people, it allowed the space for Donald Trump to say that we don't need it at all. So the Biden administration, um, what they've said is that they're very committed to um, to making the uh, America's foreign policy appeal and work for uh, the middle class. So we'll see how they deliver. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see how, how they deliver on that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it remains. It remains to be seen. It's been about ten days in the administration, if we're counting the weekends, which they seem to be working. So, uh, <laughs> um, but a lot of uh, the uh, lead up to the election, and then um, and then going into into uh, after the inauguration is how is the Biden administration? First of all, they have what what they what they say about their foreign policy is that first and foremost they have to get. The U.S. House in order. We have to get rid of COVID, um, and we have to heal these stark divisions among society. And we have, and not, not we, them. Um, they want three, to. Three of us. <laughs> three of us are going to heal the divisions in America. I'm not. I'm not part of the administration. Um, but uh, so there's COVID. Um, there's the political divisions in the country. There um, is. Uh, wealth inequity, racial inequity, um, responding to everything that's kind of happened over the, over the past four years. Um, and, and then the biggest national security threat that the administration um, says and that both Republicans and Democrats say is China. And the Biden administration has said that the way that they are looking to confront China is that they want to build up the, the strength of the U.S. at home to I don't know if they're using the word compete anymore, um, but basically the most important thing is to show that the American model um, is more advantageous for society than the Chinese model, because um, what the threat is from China is that China is, ex is trying to export its um, ideology um, and system throughout the whole world. Um, and so it's bringing America back to the forefront 
again, this isn't me saying it. I'm, I'm uh, just, but it's also, but it also makes sense. Um, and, and we're not at all partisan here. It just, it, it seems from all angles, correct that he has to, sort of uh, have to tackle COVID in order to, well, do, COVID to do anything. And, and look, China, China, this whole time, I'm not a China person. Um, I'm, I'm, and China. I, <laughs> uh, I'm a Middle East guy. I'm not a China guy. Um, fascinated by China, but, uh, you know, and we did have a China episode. Um, and maybe you can get into this a little bit. One of the things that, that, that I have heard from, from China experts in recent months is that, you know, in order to be able to, kind of promote the legitimacy of its own regime, which is not democratic and, and has many allegations of human rights abuses in order to kind of get the heat off themselves, right? They attack the American model. And now with everything that happened on the Capitol and with COVID and, you know, with uh, Black Lives Matter, they're saying, look, you guys aren't doing so well uh, in the States. We here in China are doing much better. Right. Uh, showing economic growth, showing sure, the COVID's look, under people control. People are happy. We, we function as a society, right? Maybe this is a better way to do things uh, around the world. Um, and and I th- from what I've understood, the the internet kind of campaigns that they do to try to cause yeah. unrest in America are are coming from that kind of place to kind of get heat off themselves and put America under pressure. Um, but Iran, Iran, you know, you you mentioned Iran, and of course here in Israel, that's the biggest thing, and that's an immediate thing because Iran okay. has increased its uh, enrichment of uh, of nuclear. Uh, of, of uranium to, to military levels, it's uh, increasing its kind of, you know, regional shenanigans, we'll call it. Um, there was the terrorist attack, the attempted terrorist attack in India over the weekend that's being attributed to a group that's affiliated with Iran. What's your sense, um, and, and I am an Iran geek, so I'll geek out a little bit with you on Iran. Um, what's your sense that the administration is going to go? Because, you know, Biden, first of all, was... Obama's very active vice president for eight years. Uh, and the people he brought in, you know, he brought in Rob Malley, he brought in Wendy Sherman. Um, what's your sense that they're going to go in on the Iran direction? What have you been hearing? Kind of what's the, the scoop? Yeah, well, again, that's another big question. Um, so with all of the enormous challenges that the Biden administration faces and um, and what they have to deal with domestically in the U.S. and then China as well, Iran is definitely the um, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, said that it was um, it's a priority to, to deal with what is happening um, uh, with Iran at the moment. And so and then Iran also has this February 21st deadline in their parliament they passed legislation saying that if European signatories to the Iran nuclear, the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, the joint comprehensive plan of action, um, if uh, sanctions are not eased, um, because the Europeans, from my understanding, are um, are kind of ha- are handicapped by the American sanctions, um, that they can't um, they can't deal with Iran as the JCPOA lays out because um, because the Americans have we have put on sanctions on Iran. So if those sanctions are not eased, Iran is going to um, further enrich uranium, and then it's going to kick to, kick out the UN uh, uh, international um, nuclear inspectors. Um, so the Iranian ambassador to the UN wrote in the New York Times last week and um, also gave an interview to Newsweek saying 
um, to the Biden administration, the window is closing for you to um, come back to the nuclear deal. And Iran is calling for the U.S. to come back to the nuclear deal first before Iran takes the steps to kind of reverse um, all their breaches of, of the agreement. Um, but the Biden administration says we will happily come back into the nuclear deal if Iran reverses uh, and comes back into compliance with this with the deal. So it's this kind of face off wrestling, right? But there's also the element of like, uh, are people talking a bit vague? And so there are options. I talked with Ali um, Vaez of the International Crisis Group, um, who was most recently senior advisor to Rob Malley, who's president of the International Crisis Group. Um, And he said that um, one of the ways that he sees kind of a a way out of this uh, detente, is that the the right word for it? face-off the face-off the standoff standoff um is that uh biden could issue an executive order bringing the u.s back into the iran nuclear deal but not immediately lift any sanctions that going back into the deal might trigger and instead say okay to the treasury and the state department now review the sanctions that the trump administration has put in place and see like which ones we can roll back. And the executive order would at least be a gesture um, of goodwill that the Iranians could um, then say, to, especially for their domestic audience, um, oh, look, the, um, the Americans have gone back into the deal so we can extend our timeline. Uh, we can get rid of this kind of February 21st deadline and we can start taking steps to roll back to come into compliance with the deal so that we can um, I'll be, I guess, happy in the, uh, in the Iran nuclear deal, but that's just, you know, that, that was Ali Vaez's is a, uh, assessment of the, sure. of the situation. Um, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, the, uh, so, um, national security advisor, Jake Sullivan said it's a priority, um, and secretary of state, Antony Blinken, um, has said that they, that the Biden administration wants Iran to come back into compliance and then, once that, once Iran comes back into compliance to use that, um, to use everybody in the JCPOA as a starting point to address a lot of the other malign activity that um, the deal didn't uh, address. Um, but that all of that is, I mean, he said it's a, it's, a, it's a long way down the road. And he also said that it would take time that if Iran decided to reverse course on um, it's breach of uranium enrichment levels. Uh, it would take time for them to do that and time to verify that they did that um, and all these things. So in one respect, it feels like there's a lot of time before things can happen. But then with this kind of February 21st deadline, um, you know, things feel like they should have to move quickly. How much, question for both of you, how much can or is Israel perceived by the Americans this time around as a potential wild card in the Iran equation. You want to take a first guess? You're, you're over there. From from whose perspective? From Americans? How from much is perspective? I mean, I don't think Israel's a wild. Well, okay. Wild card in the sense that we know that like Israel's not a wild card in that we know that they're opposed to the nuclear deal. Um, so we know uh, that what- I should say our, uh, Israel's ability to be patient or red um, things that Israel perceives versus red. I mean, we go back to Obama, right? There, there, were, there was always this conversation to, about where are Israel's red lines and where are the United States' red lines in terms of mm. Iran's uh, techni- technical capabilities in, in, in weapons delivery and, and production. 
and they weren't necessarily the same red lines. Mm. So, and Dan can talk about this at length more, more than I can, but, but I recall that the issue at the time was that there was always in, in the back of everyone's mind, the, uh, you know, Israel wanted it to be ambiguous. Are they going to attack Iran or not? What's the situation going to be? And in that kind of a way, that's why I'm using, using the phrase wild card. And here we're in a, we're in a place in time where, and, and I, you know, Dan, you can, you can answer this one, but uh, the chief of staff of the IDF, Aviv Kohavi, makes comments in the past week about being critical about the Biden administration's approach to Iran, which yeah. I have to believe was not some sort of a gaffe. I have to hey, believe look, that that was it's coordinated. It's unprecedented that the military echelon will make a statement really openly criticizing a possible Biden administration approach. And he didn't offer, he didn't offer what would be acceptable from Israel's perspective, because it's also not in the purview of the military to say, but I don't know if you saw this, he, uh, the IDF chief at a, at a foreign policy conference, right. Set for those listeners who aren't aware said, um, you know, basically the JCPOA and even an improved version of the JCPOA would be unacceptable. Um, and, and Israel's preparing contingency plans. And then he was photographed today or yesterday at the, um, uh what's it called the i'm going to i don't recall the name of the unit but it was the unit that's responsible Sencom. for plan no he was the sencom but then he also visited in israel i think it was a Shomer, the unit that deals with long range attack planning uh it could be the new iran yeah, command, it's like basically yeah yeah and i was just on uh, iltv earlier today talking about this um i don't know i the one thing i can't figure out obama had how did I phrase this to myself earlier for the, for the, when I was preparing for the interview? You know, the, there was there was a problem with the Obama administration approach, and there was a problem with the Trump administration approach. And you know, one was that they were way too. It seemed to me that the Obama era approach, and this is what Israel has a problem with, were were kind of too quick to give up on their leverage in order to get Iran to come to to the table. Right? This is Israel's basic argument, and so the deal was just not good from Israel's perspective. Um, and the Trump era approach was, okay, let's get out of the deal and bring back leverage, but okay, what are you doing to get Iran back to the table to accept that deal? And it was kind of like, you you, you need both. You need um, more pressure, but you also need an exit strategy to get Iran back to the table. I'm just going to be really curious to see, you know, where the U.S. goes with this and then, of course, how Israel is going to react. We also have a new situation in the region with the Abraham Accords right. and the fact that Israel is openly now allied with the UAE and Bahrain and kind of quietly allied with Saudi Arabia on this issue. And just this month, Israel joined CENTCOM. Mm -hmm. um, I was just going to say, so maybe it's not so much um, what is a wild card, but it's what is different about the dynamic this time around than in 2015. And this time around, we do have a stronger alliance between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, and then, you know, a little bit Saudi Arabia and the Biden administration I don't know if, if they've acknowledged um, publicly or if it's more kind of the people talking from the think tank saying that, um, and also representatives of, of Israel, UAE and Bahrain saying that we want to be included on the negotiations with Iran or we want to be kept more in the know of what the US is going to do with Iran. Um, and there is a recognition that we're in 2021 now. We're not in 2015. We're not in 2012. We're yeah, not you're, in 2008. You're getting that sense. Yeah. You're getting sense yeah. Kind of a new shift in this administration sinking, even though it's a lot of the same Obama era people. Right. Right. That's yeah. It's not, we're not going back in time. Um, 
we're dealing with a problem as it is now. Again, not me. <laughs> you by yourself. Are dealing with <laughs> I'm definitely not in the administration. I'm not helping. I'm just following. And, uh, you know, just, just saying the things that they say from, from their point of view. Sure. Do you get a sense? I, that, I think. <laughs> do you get a sense um, if this new administration is going to want to jump into the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in any way? I don't, I don't get that sense. Um, and heard a lot of people say that they also don't get that sense. Um, and I believe Secretary of State Blinken said during his confirmation hearing that um, it, while, while it's always welcome and it's always a hope, they, um, it's just not something that I think is going to be one of the biggest priorities. But with that being said, the Biden administration did commit to um, uh, going back to funding UNRWA, mm. yeah. the um, United Nations Relief and Works Agency, the primary uh, aid agency for Palestinian refugees, and has, and has said that it, it wants to reestablish ties with, um, with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, and then there's also, I mean, the Palestinians are expected to have an election. Um, we'll see. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Israel's going to have an election. I mean, you <laughs> might have two or four. You know what? It, it's funny. It's like we we have, you know, we always, in my lectures that I give on kind of the Middle East, I always, I don't even know what year it is now, but it's like, and Abu Mazen is on year number, whatever, 13 of his four year term. Uh, or, or whatever it is, but you know what? I think maybe we took their elections because we're having all these elections and they're That's not right. having any. That's right. We, we took you know. all of them. We, we just took their elections and then they can blame us now for having taken what, their what elections. Year, what year is Netanyahu on? He's on year number 13? Yeah, but it's he's had like six terms. <laughs> it is crazy. What Do you get a sense, um, you know, the, the past four years of Trump, and maybe we'll kind of wrap up with this, um, with this kind of topic the past four years um were very comfortable for the netanyahu government were very comfortable for right-wing israelis and for our american listeners let me point out their right-wing israelis are by far the majority in this country um and, and the trump administration solely because or, or almost solely because of their policies on israel and on Israel-related issues like Iran and like the Palestinians and like the, the UAE and the Abraham Accords were very, very comfortable uh, from Israel's perspective. Um, do, you, do you think that within now that these Democrat policymakers that have come into the various positions in the State Department, National Security Council, has there been a shift in how the Democrats are now quietly, I'm not even talking about publicly, are quietly viewing Israel quietly viewing Israeli leaders, quietly viewing the Middle East and Israel's place in it? Have you noticed any kind of shift on that thinking? Have, is, is Israel being lumped in with Trump and kind of that Trump worldview or? or is definitely, there... definitely not. I think the, the bipartisan support of Israel remains very, very strong. And uh, President Biden and his officials have, I mean, Secretary of State Blinken said that U.S. military assistance to Israel and uh, protecting Israel's security is sacrosanct. Um, so there is that's blinking, but kind of below the surface. Are you getting something else? I think that there's this one of one of the stories that has continued to have to um, to take place is this division within the Democratic Party between um, more centrist Democrats who are 
uh, full-throatedly supportive of Israel and more progressive Democrats that feel that um, more needs more pressure needs to be put on Israel um, for uh, to allow for for Palestinian aspirations. Um, and that I think it remains to be seen how that debate plays out given so much of what is happening at the moment and so much of what we have to deal with. Um, but there is always that element of that. Um, and you know, what, what, what was, what was the question? I'm just curious if, if kind of like that, you know, Biden, Biden, of course, and Blinken and a lot of these top people have been known to be kind of centrist pro-Israel Democrats. And we always talk about the the kind of progressive Democrats that are a lot more critical of Israel and want to pressure Israel. I'm just curious, kind of behind the scenes in Washington, um, maybe not on the top, top level, because we know a lot of the top level foreign policy people in this administration are pro-Israel, but kind of like the second level, the third level, if you see kind of this, the other part of the Democratic Party and those kind of other voices on Israel are starting to come to more influence. I, are you referring to kind of some of the appointments that were made recently uh, at the State Department with like the, awesome. yeah. um, so I haven't, I haven't had a chance to really look too deeply into that, but it feels like those appointments were seized upon a bit um, by a little bit more conservative Jewish media saying that people being appointed in the Biden administration who are of Palestinian descent. Um, who've been involved in kind of, you know, anti-Israel groups or pro-Palestinian groups in the past, like these kind of stories that you're seeing. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not very familiar with, um, with some of these officials. I just saw like some headlines um, that appeared critical of their appointments. Um, and so I, I guess it's going to be something that uh, that people are going to be following closely in how the in in how the in what policies come out of the Biden administration um, toward Israel and toward the Palestinians, um, and and how much that uh, that is impacted by, I guess maybe perceived uh, anti-Israel bias or something like that. Yeah. Well. Yet to be seen. It's going to be tons of fun, though. Yeah, it's going to be great following <laughs> this for gonna, the yeah. next year, two years, and see where this all unfolds. So as well, we as we wrap up, yeah, as we wrap up, I guess I'll ask you one one. Uh, I'll, I'll ask you a fun question. Maybe Dan can ask you a fun question from our own particular context. You said that you 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 love travel. Um, COVID ends. Where's the first place you're going? I really want to go to Central and South America. Um, when when everything was shutting down. I was doing a lot of reporting on people who were stuck abroad and one of the, there was, there were like over 10,000 Americans stuck in Peru. Um, so they were stuck there for, for kind of weeks before they were able to um, get repatriation flights. Um, but, and at the same time that they were like really struggling with being stuck there, I'm like, Oh, but Peru looks so nice. Uh, right. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, there's this, I saw in the news yesterday, they're covering Israelis that are stuck right now because the airport shut down and they covered oh. family in Seychelles they're living in this like amazing oh, Airbnb on the beach like with an infinity pool and coconut palms and the whole thing tough like, life it's really tough really life tough they're being stuck in Seychelles for the next month I don't know 
Well, well, I mean, tough if you if you can't work, of course, and we've got bills and stuff to pay, and you don't know what's going to happen. But um, but yeah, so and there were a lot of um, people that were like stuck in Guatemala and Honduras and things like that. So, and I haven't been to that part of the world um uh, in a while. Well, I was in El Salvador um in January two thousand seventeen, but um that was kind of the last time I was there. So so yeah, so really want to want to get to there if I can. Awesome. And I got to ask, what what are you watching slash reading for fun these days? Netflix. Oh gosh. Anything? I mean, I have, I have, um, I just finished o- Obama's book and I, uh, so it's, I mean like fun, I guess. I mean, it was, it was fun. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. Um, and I just, I just picked up, um, William Burns's uh, book, uh, the back channel, I think it's called, and he's just, uh, nominated for director of the CIA. Um, so, but I feel like I, you know, I don't even, I'm reading so much for work that I don't even have have time to uh to read but i will say i watched this documentary on netflix the other day um called cuba and the cameraman i think that's i've seen it. it amazing what what's yeah. amazing yeah it's really really good to the cameraman what is it what's it about um this i uh, no this documentary filmmaker uh from new york and he's a character in himself um, it's it, the whole documentary is basically his like 30 year travels back and forth to Cuba. And he also, um, by virtue of being like one of the only American journalists in Cuba during like after the Cuban revolution, um, he got noticed by Fidel Castro and he's got some of these kind of like crazy intimate moments with, uh, with yeah. Or he, I mean, he at least liked him. <laughs> crazy. So how can so, people how, how can people find you? How can people read your articles? Where if uh, you know they want to be in touch? Um, sure. My my Twitter is at hello Laura Kelly. Um, so you can follow me there. And not to confuse with the governor of Kansas. I know. You know when I was reporting on whether Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was going to run for Senate in Kansas, I was like reaching out to people in Kansas, and they would get my email. They'd be like, "What, Laura Kelly?" <laughs> And then they would be really disappointed when they found out I was a reporter. We're thrilled. We're thrilled to know you. Um, and then, you know, my byline at The Hill, if you just Google uh, Laura Kelly, The Hill, my author page comes up and it has all my articles. Um, and yeah, Twitter is probably the best place. You can send me a message and uh, tweet at me and things like that. So fantastic. Well, foreign affairs reporter on Capitol Hill for The Hill. Laura yeah. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us on Juanced. Thank you, guys. This is great. Awesome. And uh, take care. And hopefully when travel opens up and uh, we'll be in Washington or you'll be back in Israel, we can uh, get to say hi in person. Yes, that'd be wonderful. And for those of you still listening, make sure to follow us. Facebook, we are Juwants. Twitter, we're Juwants Podcast. Instagram, also Juwants. YouTube, Spotify. Subscribe. Apple, wherever you get your podcast, leave us a good review. And uh, we'll see you next week. All right, guys. Have a good one. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced. <laughs>